Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. Are you a pedophile? No. Are you sexually attracted to young boys, to underage boys? Am I sexually attracted to yes. underage boys? Sexually attracted, you know, I, I enjoy young people. I, I love to be around them. No doubt attorney Mitchell Garabedian was not stunned to learn of the thousands of local Boy Scouts who filed suit against the Boy Scouts National Organization. He's representing men from Boston and throughout the state, part of the more than 92,000 men nationwide who say they were sexually abused as scouts. This is familiar, awful territory for Garabedian, whose life's work has been representing victims of sexual abuse by Catholic priests. Garabedian described the Boy Scouts' culture of abuse, telling GBH News the Boy Scouts of America did not properly supervise these Boy Scout leaders who sexually abused innocent children. I didn't know the extent of the now-documented four decades-long sexual abuse in the Boy Scouts, but I began to get a sense of how widespread it could be when I continued to see those TV alerts urging sexually abused victims to come forward. The deadline, part of the organization's bankruptcy, was two weeks ago today. The youngest filer is eight and the oldest, 93. The Boy Scouts of America responded to the thousands of lawsuits in a statement. We are heartbroken that we cannot undo their pain. That statement rings hollow now that I know how long the national organization kept silent. They collected allegations and letters from the 1960s through the 1990s in what later became known as the perversion file. Oregon lawyers won the right to make those files public in 2012. What the accusers reported then is similar to what recent former Boy Scouts also reported. Forced naked swimming, late-night fondling in camp tents, threats not to tell. Some of the accused went to jail, but most paid no price for traumatizing their young charges. Meanwhile, those boys turned men spent a lifetime trying to push down the memories of the sexual abuse, many of them battling addiction and mental health issues. I'm infuriated when I think about this criminal behavior going on while the Boy Scouts held fast to a policy banning gay boys until seven years ago and gay troop leaders until the year after. And as enrollment sharply dropped, the Boy Scouts began a cynical rebranding campaign inviting girls into the Scouts' formerly all-male ranks. I knew it was a calculated move to balance their books, and I'm disgusted that an organization mired in accusations of abuse and maintaining hidden perversion files recruited young girls, potentially setting them up to be the next victims. 
As a Boy Scout, Maryland resident Larry Akers would have to recite the Scout Oath, where he pledged to be morally straight, reciting that oath while being sexually violated by the troop leaders. Akers told the Washington Post that for most of his life, he blunted his pain by using alcohol and drugs. Now sober, he said of the recent revelations, everybody knows, America knows. But knowledge isn't enough. Action is required. Accountability is required. Punishment is required. Shockingly, the number of total Boy Scout sexual abuse cases is already bigger than the abuse cases in the Catholic Church. Mitchell Garabedian is likely to be busy for a very long while. Callie Crossley, GBH, Boston's local NPR. First order of business when it comes to the black female. First time, last time. I think I said this before in this program. I've certainly said it on many others. What do I mean by first time, last time? First time he hits you. That's the last time. In our series, Justice Delayed, we've been talking about how the pandemic has led to a backlog of court cases of all kinds. Some states shuttered courts altogether for a time. Others opened them with specific kinds of cases taking priority. And others are only conducting proceedings virtually. And that changing court landscape means more and more victims of intimate partner violence may be facing delays in their cases and struggling to receive or even reach out for the resources they need. So picking up on our series, Justice Delayed, we have Margot Lindauer, the director of the Domestic Violence Institute at Northeastern University School of Law. Margot, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. What types of intimate partner violence are we seeing nationally right now? Well, we're seeing similar types of intimate partner violence that we always see. We're just seeing an increase in numbers and severity with a decrease in services. So we see intimate partner violence between intimate partners or romantic partners. We see violence in the home between family members. We see violence in the home between roommates and housemates as well. We talked a little bit about this on a global scale in the last segment, but what's really driving this? Is it the pressure cooker environment that a lot of us are in because we're home more and we're isolated more from other folks? I think it's a, it's multiple factors. I don't think we can pick just one. I think the isolation of the pandemic certainly has exacerbated rates and risks of intimate partner violence. We see the economic impact of the pandemic, particularly on communities that are vulnerable, exacerbating intimate partner violence, housing instability, exacerbating intimate partner violence, the challenge of many, many schools being closed and students going online also exacerbating stress and intimate violence in the home. What did the intimate partner violence landscape look like in terms of getting help before the pandemic? That's a really good question because it was never enough. The service availability prior to the pandemic in the United States in March we always saw more demand than supply. And what I mean by that is there were always more individuals seeking shelter than there were shelter beds available. There were always more individuals seeking legal service help than there were legal services available. There were always more individuals seeking domestic violence services in general, housing services in general. But what we've seen with the pandemic is that the demand has increased and the supply of services has decreased dramatically. So many folks who who may need help and may want help are not getting the help that they need. 
increase. I understand what's led to the increase in need, but what's led to the decrease in supply? So one of the things that we're experiencing is that as many organizations and institutions have moved their operations to online or to virtual intervention or virtual services, rather, that might not work for the population we're serving. So that's twofold, right? Maybe an individual who's seeking services cannot or does not have access to the technology required to meet with a case manager or a lawyer virtually. That's one. The other is that virtual engagement might be convenient for some people in that you don't have to leave your home, of course, but it might be unsafe for a victim who is living or in close proximity to their abuser. The other thing we're seeing, um, at least in Boston, is that some hearings, um, particularly restraining order or intimate partner violence, civil restraining orders, many courts are requiring individuals to appear in person for those hearings. And what we're seeing also is that many of those individuals prior to the pandemic may have been eligible for pro bono representation through a variety of different resources. But many individuals, many lawyers and many firms and many organizations are not allowing their attorneys to go in in person. So even if there wasn't where it wasn't enough attorneys prior to the pandemic to do pro bono or low bono representation, there are even fewer attorneys available now. That's just one example. Let's talk about, so beyond the the lack of attorneys that are available, what about the courts themselves? I mean, I've had to handle some basic things, what I thought were basic things in court. And, and even the, the folks there have said to me, look, we are backed up. Like anything that you've got to handle is going to take longer than normal. So are there also delays in terms of reporting, uh, filing, uh, for example, restraining orders or orders of protection? Yeah, so there are absolutely significant date delays in the court system. What I will say is that many courts are prioritizing restraining orders, civil restraining orders, as they are emergency in nature. But I will also say that many criminal cases that involve domestic violence have been pushed back and have experienced incredible delays. So many of the cases where uh, an individual might have a civil restraining order against their abuser, they may also be a victim in a criminal case. And those cases have experienced incredible delays. Courts are operating on skeletal staff. They are operating in some form of hybrid in-person and remote operation. Most courts, as far as I know, are not seating any juries or doing any jury trials. So many of the criminal cases involving intimate partner violence have experienced incredible backlogs. We've read stories about, uh, particularly in the New York Law Journal, about how lawyers were, uh, some of them at the peak of the pandemic, were trying to communicate with their clients from parking lots and random places, just scrambling to try and help these folks. Have you heard from lawyers as well who are really uh, doing everything that they can uh, to try and ameliorate some of the issues that uh, these intimate partner violence victims are experiencing? Yes, I would say that advocates in general, not just lawyers, many are going, you know, using their clients' experiences and their clients' stories and what is safe for their clients to meet them where they are if that is safe. What I will say is that many advocates, case managers, lawyers are confronting challenges with kind of organizational protocol about in-person case management and advocacy. So there's some tension there. Um, Is it that 
advocates are trying to physically meet with their clients and aren't able to do that because of the pandemic? Yes, I would say that there is certainly a real challenge of meeting in person um, for certain for certain advocates. Um, certain organizations aren't allowing it. Uh, certain advocates um, cannot because of pre-existing conditions of their own or family members. And so it is really challenging um, to meet in person and vice versa for victims as well. Um, it might not be safe for them to meet in person or they may not be able to leave their homes. What about the effect that all of this is having if the couple has children um, on the children, the uh, uh, stresses or mental health effects on families that are having to go through this system during the pandemic? Absolutely. The impact on children is severe. It always is severe. But what we see kind of in pre-pandemic times is that schools often are a positive source of intervention and services for many children who are witnessing domestic violence and experiencing the impacts of domestic violence. We're also seeing, of course, that the stress of remote education kind of has its own mental health impact on children. So for a child living in a home where they're exposed to violence and experiencing the pandemic and the isolation associated with not being in school, the impact is severe. Margot, We want to offer some hope um, to people who may be listening to this and who may be in an intimate partner violence situation that they feel trapped in. What can, what are some real steps that someone in that situation can take right now? Yes. So what I would say is help and advocacy looks different for different people. So while there have always been I mean, for the last 40 or so years, kind of traditional domestic violence agencies and hotlines that are available and are a wonderful resource, many individuals might not feel comfortable going to those resources for help. And so what I would say is that encouraging people to identify and look for positive sources of help, either within their communities, within their families, and turning to domestic violence agencies and reaching out for help in however it feels comfortable and safe for them. What I will say is that more and more community-based agencies, including faith-based organizations, have more training related to intimate partner violence and have more potential services and interventions available to them. I will also say that because of the pandemic, um, organizations have become more creative in the services that they've offered. And so while traditional domestic violence shelters per se might not be appropriate because of social distancing protocols, many agencies uh, have and can offer other forms of emergency shelter intervention in the form of hotels or long stay apartments. And so I would encourage individuals who are experiencing intimate partner violence to Look for local agencies, local resources, and reach out for help. Margot Lindauer is the director of the Domestic Violence Institute at Northeastern University School of Law. Margot, thanks so much. Thank you. The optics? What's an optic? Marcia, I have a black voting base, and I can't risk getting an all-white jury. I don't want to hear the words Rodney King or Simi Valley ever again. I don't know. Doesn't Simpson deserve a jury of his peers? You know, rich, middle-aged white men? They're called Jim Crow jury laws. They allow a jury that is not unanimous to convict someone of a crime. And until recently, they were still on the books in Oregon and Louisiana. What role do you think that the uh, sordid roots of the 
non-unanimous jury rule in Louisiana should play in our analysis. That's Justice Clarence Thomas from Wednesday when the Supreme Court heard another case on these laws. The court already declared these Jim Crow jury laws unconstitutional in April. What's at stake now is whether that should be retroactive, whether the people still imprisoned by a non-unanimous verdict must face a new trial. Jamila Johnson argues for this. She's managing attorney for the Jim Crow Juries Project that's at the Promise of Justice Initiative in Louisiana. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I want to come back to this quote from Justice Thomas, who talked about the sordid roots of the non-unanimous jury rule. What are the roots of that system? Jim Crow juries were created in 1898 specifically to circumvent the standard of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. They wanted to silence the voices of black jurors and make it easier to send black people to prison. The original Constitutional Convention was held explicitly for the purpose of establishing the supremacy of the white race. Lawmakers at that same convention put in place laws that prevented black Louisianans from voting, segregated the schools, and silenced black jurors. Now, your organization found that 80 percent of these people convicted under Jim Crow juries uh, in your state are black, um, which essentially affirms that this system very much impacts people today. Absolutely. There are over 1,500 men and women who remain in Louisiana's prisons today who were convicted with these unconstitutional and racist practices. Now, Ramos v. Louisiana, this case was decided this April, uh, deemed these juries unconstitutional. And Evangelisto Ramos was actually your firm's client. What can you tell us about that case? That case involved a gentleman who was facing a life without the possibility of parole sentence, like 62% of the men and women who remain in Louisiana's prisons with these convictions. Right. He had been convicted of murder on a, a 10 to 2 count? He had. And for him, going to the U.S. Supreme Court was incredibly important. It got him a new trial. But for the more than 1,500 men and women who had final convictions, they are really dependent on what happened in the Ramos case to apply to them. I think most people assume that when the U.S. Supreme Court says that something is unconstitutional, that the Supreme Court will also provide a remedy. Historically, that hasn't been a guarantee And the case before the U.S. Supreme Court now is to decide whether to give those men and women a remedy for their convictions. Top law officials in Louisiana and Oregon have both said that retroactively applying the Ramos case would be harmful or unnecessary or would strain their judicial systems, right? I mean, how do you respond to that concern? The Promise of Justice Initiative provided a friend of the court brief to the U.S. Supreme Court that showed that it would increase the workload for district attorneys about, on average, two additional cases. Louisiana is the incarceration capital of the country. With the many trials that happen, this is a small percentage. And frankly, for the other 48 states, when they took a case to trial and they were unable to get a unanimous verdict, they retried those cases or decided not to retry those cases. The state of Oregon and the state of Louisiana shouldn't get a benefit for having a racist law on their books. What could this decision mean for the people who potentially could benefit from a retrial, right? If this case goes their way and you represent defendants like this, what would that mean for their cases? 
It means a chance at justice and at fairness. For them, it means whether they will get to return home and be fathers and be mothers and be children and brothers and sisters. For people who are serving these very long sentences, this is potentially their last hope. I think it's hard for the men and women who are in Louisiana's prison system to see all of the changes that are happening in our country right now and the conversations about race and be in a spot where it's still uncertain whether after the U.S. Supreme Court says that they were convicted by a racist and unconstitutional practice that they might still spend the rest of their lives in prison. Jamila Johnson, managing attorney for the Jim Crow Juries Project. That's at the Promise of Justice Initiative in Louisiana. Thank you for your time. Thank you. There's been a lot of really good news recently about coronavirus vaccines. And while they are on the way, it's worth remembering it will likely be months before members of the general public can get inoculated. There are nearly 330 million people in the U.S., and the government promises just shy of six and a half million doses of a new vaccine will be distributed to states and available by mid-December. Federal health officials say the nation's governors will decide who receives them first. Virginia Governor Ralph Northam has the unique distinction of being both a governor and a physician. So we thought we'd ask him how he's thinking about this task. He joins us now. Governor Northam, welcome. Well, hello, Sarah, and thanks for having me. And yes, we are really excited about the vaccinations. And, you know, while we have been fighting this pandemic, I believe it or not, for close to 10 months, uh, this is a, a real breakthrough. And I, I just would remind folks that uh, while we're, you know, logistically working on making sure that there's a safe and effective vaccination, we still have a few months where we have to remain vigilant and continue to keep that curve as flat as we can. Right. So as this first batch of vaccine doses becomes available soon, it looks like, as a physician and as a governor who will be responsible for deciding how to distribute those in your state, the Commonwealth of Virginia, how are you thinking about that? We've been working on uh, uh, how to distribute this vaccination uh, safely and equitably uh, for a few months now. And we have different phases that we'll use following the CDC guidelines of, you know, who are the first ones that will uh, receive the vaccination. But, you know, it's, Sarah, there's a lot of uh, issues uh, that we're working on. First of all, logistically, um, this vaccination, especially one of them has to be kept at a very uh, cold temperature. So we've, we've got freezers set up throughout Virginia. Uh, And one thing that, you know, hopefully we can talk about a little bit is the trust issue. It's going to be very important in messaging that people are comfortable, uh, not only in Virginia, but across this country, that this vaccination is safe uh, and it's effective. We have seen, as you know, resistance around the country to social distancing rules and mask mandates. How worried are you that we'll see more of that when it comes to the vaccine in numbers large enough to diminish its effectiveness? You know, it's unfortunate that that individuals are not following the guidelines. It's unfortunate it's become political. Certainly, there are going to be some, Sarah, that that won't want to uh, receive the vaccination. But I think the majority of people will because I I think people are are tired. Uh, They they want to get this uh, in the rearview mirror and get back to a a near normal life. And so I will be glad as governor and and as a, a doctor Uh, to let Virginians know when this vaccination is safe. Uh, And my family and I plan on being there to take this vaccination as well. As we mentioned, only a little more than 6 million doses will be available nationwide initially, uh, those being divided up among the states. What do you think will be Virginia's share? 
Well, initially, uh, they're looking at 70,000 uh, doses. Uh, we have, you know, if you do the math, we have 8 million Virginians. So that's why we will be going uh, to those that are most susceptible, the, the, our, our health care workers, and also those individuals that, that work and live in our long-term care facilities. And then we'll go into phase two, which will uh, be a lot of frontline workers, for example, teachers, food uh, preparers, those types of things. And then the phase three will be the, the general population. And hopefully uh, by you know early to midsummer, have everybody in Virginia vaccinated. You know, one other thing I would say, I'm, as you probably know, I'm a pediatrician. And uh, we know that uh, the initial studies, uh, they haven't been done on children. And so we're encouraging that we you know, start those uh, trials with children because they're going to need to be vaccinated as well as we move forward. Another thing I want to ask you about when it comes to distribution, um, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said recently that he and other governors had participated in a call with President-elect Biden focused in part on vaccine distribution. And one of the concerns raised was making sure that it's distributed in a way that is inclusive of minority communities. How are you thinking about how to do that? Well, it's absolutely uh, important that, that we do that. And, and as the first diversity, equity, and inclusion officer, Dr. Janice Underwood, and, and she has really done an amazing job reaching out to uh, different communities in Virginia with testing, with PPE. Um, and I'll just give you a quick example of, of something that we saw and, and really learned a lot from. We had a testing site set up in, in Hampton Roads. I believe it was in Chesapeake. And, and we advertised for it, and only five people showed up for the testing. And we said, well, what is going on here? And and so we talked to some of the faith leaders, and they said, well, I'll tell you exactly what's going on. It's a trust issue. And so the faith leaders in Hampton Roads put together a video. They showed it uh, in their churches, and we rescheduled that testing, and, and hundreds showed up. And so the point is that in order to you know, have people either tested or vaccinated, they have to trust what we're doing. And so we're going to pay a lot of attention to that as we move forward because it is an equity issue and we want to make sure everybody has access to the vaccination. You and your wife, of course, had the coronavirus several months ago. Uh, can I ask how you're doing? Well, I appreciate that. We're, we're doing well. Uh, my wife and I uh, had, my, I would classify them as, as mild cases, which we were fortunate. I lost my sense of smell. It was about six to eight weeks ago, and I, it hasn't returned. Uh, so I'm anxiously awaiting that. But I do worry, Sarah, there are a lot of people that, uh, that are very, very vulnerable. And obviously, we've lost over 4,000 Virginians. You mentioned that you do plan to take the vaccine when it's available. Uh, of course, there's been a lot of talk about antibodies in people who've already had the virus. Do you have a good handle on, on how long you have those antibodies and, and why have you decided that you believe you should take the vaccine nonetheless? Yes, I think we're learning more about the antibodies uh, every day. But uh, as you know, there uh, have been some individuals that have been reinfected. So I think the CDC guidelines as we move forward will be for those that have had uh, the virus that they still would require the vaccination to be entirely safe. But certainly uh, we will allow those that are uh, in more vulnerable populations that they, they need to be at the front line for sure. That's Virginia Governor Ralph Northam and also Dr. Northam. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. You take care and stay healthy.
Now everybody's like, jails ain't tough enough. Jails ain't tough enough. We gotta have a death penalty. Jails ain't tough enough. We're beginning today's story at a travel lodge at the corner of 186th Street and Normandy in South LA. So we walked up here to 203. This is where Paul Aline quarantined for two weeks after being released from San Quentin. We walked under here and went to the uh, underground garage, and really this was like my first taste of freedom. Aline is one of thousands of Californians getting out of prison early during the pandemic. Back in March, the state worked quickly to release 3,500 inmates. Today, that number has jumped to over 17,000. But Aline's release story is a bit different from most of the other newly freed. I'm someone who served a 24-year, eight-month sentence for conspiracy to commit murder for hire, uh, attempted murder and robbery. And I just got released from prison on July 21st. Most prisoners getting out early qualify under new pandemic rules. Aline doesn't because he committed a violent crime. Instead, he's out now because he had already been found suitable for parole and the state moved up his date. So how is the state of California making these decisions about who stays in and who gets out? And should people like Aline be kept in prison or should they be the first in line to get out? Reporter Lucy Kopp has the story. Let's go back to late May, right before San Quentin Prison would be splashed across national headlines as the site of the worst COVID outbreak in the country. It hadn't exploded yet. When I say exploded, I mean chaos in general. Aline remembers when things took a sudden turn. San Quentin had been able to stave off the virus all spring. But that changed in June, when the state decided to transfer 121 men from a hotspot prison in Chino to San Quentin. This transfer is now considered the most botched and deadly transfer in state history. I very distinctly remember that around the 18th, guys said, hey, there's a little, there's a little cold going around the building. And usually when you hear that in San Quentin or most prisons, by the time you hear it, you probably already got it. The virus exploded, and it quickly became clear that the prison could no longer separate the positive cases from the negative ones. They realized that they were running out of room. There's so many people that are positive. We can't keep taking the positive guy and sending him to Badger and then the negative Sully and sending him to Alpine. We don't have enough room for that. Officers began calling out of work afraid for their own lives. Nurses were short-staffed. And Aline's building of 780 men were losing patients. They're neglecting things like our showers, medications coming late. And so, you know, this is how things are starting to deteriorate. Then Aline's cellmate tested positive for COVID-19. Aline quickly got it too, but had mild symptoms. He listened to the echoes of people calling man down, sometimes two to three times a day. We're in there in our cells watching TV and we're seeing guys that just got released protesting for us saying, you know, let let them go. You're killing them in there. Get them some help. On June 29th, Governor Newsom addressed the crisis at a televised uh, news conference. That, uh, we uh, are committed uh, to meeting uh, our responsibilities uh, within CDCR uh, and moreover, as we release prisoners, the impact uh, that will have outside of... When I saw him start to stumble over his words and start making promises about who, oh, we're going to reduce the population, I promise you I'm going to get... 
I was like, I was flabbergasted. I said, oh, this is, this is having an effect. The state decided to release 8,000 more incarcerated people on top of the 3,500 who were already released early in the spring. If you had 180 days left on your sentence for a nonviolent crime, you qualified. If you were medically high risk and had a year left on your sentence for a nonviolent crime, you qualified. The governor's focus was on so-called non-non-nons, those in prison for non-serious, non-violent, non-sexual crimes. Aline did not qualify, but should he have? Well, we're not taking into consideration that a person has been in prison for 20 years and they've gone through all of these rehabilitative programs and they haven't committed a violent offense in the past 20 years or 15 years, they're no longer a violent offender. That's Sam Lewis director of the Anti-Recidivism Coalition. I should note, I produce a podcast called Life on the Outside that is partnered with this organization. Lewis's point is that most incarcerated people who have life sentences and then qualify for release qualify because they are no longer likely to be violent. Lifers have the lowest recidivism rate of any group of formerly incarcerated people at under 1%. They also tend to be older, adding to the unlikelihood they'll reoffend. On the other hand, their age puts many of them at high risk for COVID-related complications. Lifers usually know themselves better than any of us out here will ever know ourselves. They have had to look at their lives in a really deep manner. Vanessa Nelson Sloan is the director of Lifer Support Alliance. She says if you have a life sentence, you need to earn your freedom. And you do that by gaining insight into your crime showing remorse, and taking full responsibility. This is part of the reason the recidivism rate amongst lifers is so low. But, she says, the public sees it differently. The public has a, a, a really warped perception of prisoners, but lifers in particular. They seem to see all of these folks as totally bloodthirsty, unaccountable murderers with, with no remorse. And that is not the case. Back in 2008, a California Supreme Court case considered this question— should people serving life sentences for violent crimes be considered for release if they no longer present a danger to society? The court answered yes, ruling in favor of the release of someone like Aline. That's part of the reason why in the last decade, more lifers in California are being found suitable for parole and released back into society than ever before. But victims and crime survivor groups have been rattled by this trend. Victims and survivors and family members are devastated. That's Patricia Winskunas. She runs the Crime Survivors Resource Center, and she's witnessing firsthand how these early releases are alarming crime survivors. We've been contacted by many recently saying they were getting early release notices, and so they're triggered, they're traumatized, they're having night tears, they're not sure what to do, even though, yes, maybe this person did serve their time, but that doesn't mean that that person now is not going to come after that person. They, they, I mean, there's no guarantee either way. When Skuna says that with the momentum shifted towards rehabilitation, victims' voices are left unheard. It's all about the offender, the offender, the rehabilitation. No, it's not. It's, it's about the victim. Nelson Sloan from Lifer Support Alliance has compassion for this perspective too. My husband and I are both relatives and survivors of violent crime. You can't say to victims, get over it because you never get over it. And I understand that. But, she says, we have to follow the law. 
it's really individual to individual. And there's a lot of guys that, that are ready to go home. And I think that if someone looked at a lot of people's records, especially like when we were all in San Quentin, if someone had started going over files, they could have picked a whole bunch of people that could have been lifers that could have been let go. In November 2019, Aline was found suitable. And luckily, you know, at San Quentin, I was going to college, gaining analytical reading skills and writing skills. And I applied that to the self-help group material. And I had some very poignant moments in groups where I realized the totality of the harm I had done to someone. His change and growth made him, in the eyes of the commissioners, no longer a threat and safe to return home. But he had no release date. Then in July, as San Quentin was reeling from the COVID outbreak, Aline was told to pack up his cell. After 24 years of incarceration, he was going home. So two officers come to the door and they're like, you're Aline, right? And I'm like, yeah. I said, where are we going now? Upstairs? They go, hell no. We're going to L.A. You ready? And I was like, what do you mean we're going to L.A.? Dude, we're about to put you in the car. You're going, you're going to L.A. to your to your quarantine hotel right now. Do you need to go to the bathroom? I was like, hell no, let's go. Eline hopped into a van that sped over the San Rafael Bridge across the San Francisco Bay. Even though you're in San Quentin and you see the water, the water just looks so beautiful. I swear I sat there the entire five-hour ride to L.A. just looking out the window. He checked into his travel lodge for two mandatory weeks of quarantine. Well, when they, sh- when they first shut the door, I, like, made sure that they were far away. And I went, yes! And I jumped, jumped on the bed a couple times, you know, on my back, like, I can't believe it. Aline has been out for four months now. He's looking forward to getting licensed as a truck driver. And when I asked him what the best part of freedom is, he didn't hesitate. Obviously, hugging my mom for the first time, I was just totally in tears. It just pulls on my heartstrings. As California struggles to contain COVID inside prisons, Aline and other lifers hope the state will look beyond the most politically palatable releases of nonviolent offenders and consider those with long-term sentences, too. For KCRW, I'm Lucy Kopp. This week, a panel of CDC advisors voted on recommendations to determine who should get top priority once a COVID-19 vaccine is rolled out. Under these guidelines, healthcare workers and the elderly in long-term care facilities would get access to a vaccine first, and they would be followed by a group of essential workers, from transportation workers to teachers and corrections officers. Many of the people incarcerated in the prisons where those officers work, however, would not be prioritized under the CDC recommendations. And that's despite the fact that at least 200,000 people in jails and prisons across the country have contracted COVID-19 during the pandemic. And in federal prisons, many incarcerated people say that health protections have been alarmingly inadequate. I woke up on my sleep hyperventilating and sweating and stuff. And I went to the office and I'm like, yo, you got to get me out of here. I can't breathe. Something's wrong with me. And he told me to tough it out. It was like two in the morning. He said, you got to tough it out. That's a 35-year-old man who's currently incarcerated in New Jersey's Fort Dix prison. He recently spoke with WNYC reporter Karen Yee and asked that his name be withheld. 
Fort Dix is experiencing the worst COVID-19 outbreak of any federal prison in the United States. According to the Federal Bureau of Prisons, 289 people incarcerated at Fort Dix and 28 staff members have tested positive for the virus. Though the Bureau also says that no one at Fort Dix has died from the virus. Here to discuss the Fort Dix coronavirus outbreak is Karen Yee, a reporter covering New Jersey for WNYC. Karen, thanks for being with us. Hi, good to be here. How did the outbreak at Fort Dix begin? So uh, there were a couple of cases in the spring of COVID. I think it went up to 40 at some point. And over the summer, we saw those numbers come down. But then in October, we started to see those numbers creep up back again. And what what we've sort of pieced together between speaking to people inside the prison, family members and court records is it could have been either a big transfer of prisoners from an Ohio prison. There was a huge outbreak in Ohio and about 300 uh, prisoners were transferred to Fort Dix in late September, and some of them had tested positive. So the BOP says they were properly quarantined, but it's unclear if maybe some of those prisoners could have uh, given the virus to the general population at Fort Dix. Also around the same time, you had cases in New Jersey spiking and correctional correctional officers coming in and out of the prisons. And you also had visits resuming temporarily for a few weeks. So any of those ways, the virus could have come into the prison. And you saw in October, in one day, cases tripling overnight from from 50 to 200, and it sort of kept growing from there. We reached out to the Bureau of Prisons, and in a statement, they told us that they provide, quote, appropriate treatment to anyone who tests positive for COVID-19 in its prisons. But in interviews with WNYC that you've conducted, people who are in Fort Dix And their family members describe testing positive for the virus and then being left for hours in rooms with others who were negative. Tell us a little bit about that. That's right. So the BOP has a policy and procedure as to what happens when somebody tests positive. But in practice, that's a lot more complicated, right? Because at Fort Dix specifically, these are dorm style military barracks. So you have 12 men to a room. 300 in a building. And so often you have people quarantining who are positive on one floor, negative on the other. You find out you're positive and it takes a few hours to move you to a quarantine or an isolation unit. Um, you know, you also have issues with the the men sharing a lot of common spaces because this is a low security prison. Generally, there's a lot more movement and flexibility. They share bathrooms on the same floor. So you have 80 men using the same bathrooms, the same sinks, the same showers, bunk beds. So there is, you know, generally in prison, social distance is nearly impossible, particularly in Fort Dix, because of the setup, it's, it's even more impossible. What about the personal protective equipment, things like masks? Are those provided for the prisoners? And are there adequate places to wash your hands, for example, or hand sanitizer? So masks were mandated in April by the Bureau of Prisons, and the prisoners say that they have received masks. They receive cloth masks, two generally a week. The issue is, you know, they get dirty, they get soiled, and when they're being washed, they have nothing to wear. Some of the complaints that I've also heard from family members of those incarcerated and those inside is that the guards aren't always wearing the masks when they come in, and and if they're moving between buildings, that becomes a concern. In terms of disinfectants and cleaning supplies, a lot of them have complained about this uh, this not happening. I mean, the BOP has said areas are thoroughly cleansed if somebody tests positive. Prisoners have said flat out, that's not happening. We're not seeing that. We're begging for cleaning supplies. We're not getting it. In one quarantine unit where 
at one point, most of the inmates, 218 out of 231 from the last court records I saw, had tested positive. A lot of the people in there were complaining about an infestation of gnats, you know, things not being cleaned, toilets not being cleaned. These are, again, shared spaces. In terms of soap, the BOP has said they do provide soap if, if they can't afford it through commissary. Again, the inmates have said a lot of the soap dispensers are routinely empty. Karen, there's been a lot of talk about a vaccine. And of course, um, now there isn't just talk about a vaccine, but there's movement toward actually getting a vaccine in the hands of uh, American citizens in terms of priority. When you were doing your reporting at Fort Dix, were any of the incarcerated people you spoke to aware of a vaccine? And how did they did they have any feelings about whether or not they wanted to take a vaccine? That's not something that came up. Um, the vaccine conversation has really picked up sort of in the last couple of weeks. I think the biggest concern from those incarcerated is sort of immediate medical care. Like that is what they are desperate for. I think the reality is a lot of the people inside Fort Dix, about 2,700, are going to ride out the pandemic in there. I mean, there are two ways to get out of prison. There's home confinement and there's compassionate release. Not everyone is eligible. Um, so they're not necessarily pushing to get a vaccine. From what I heard, they're sort of pushing to get very basic medical care, see a doctor, see a nurse, get access to their medical records, get more than Tylenol, those very basic steps. That's that's really what the, the conditions that they want to change right now. Karen, you also spoke with family members of people who are incarcerated at Fort Dix. And uh, here's what Karen Gasper, whose son Chris is incarcerated there and tested positive for COVID-19, had to say to you. I feel helpless. I feel totally helpless. I mean, my son calls me and says, Mom, just give up on me. He said, because I don't think I'm ever coming home. I mean, he doesn't even call his children anymore because he said, you know, I just I don't want to give them some kind of false hope. It breaks my heart. How typical is that, Karen, for family members who have incarcerated family members who are uh, dealing with uh, COVID-19? I heard that sentiment time and time again. I think especially for Karen, you know, she's a mom. And when your child is sick, you are able to take care of them. So that and she can't right? she can't visit. She doesn't know what's going on. She has no access to his medical records. Um, so I think that feeling of helplessness is what I heard echoed throughout many families. You know, they just they feel like the pleas for help are falling on, on deaf ears. And so, um, I, I mean, for I haven't seen any movement from the BOP since I've reported this story. No changes to their conditions. Just yesterday I was hearing again of somebody who had recently tested positive and only getting Tylenol. So things like this are continuing. And even since I reported the story two weeks ago, we've seen another 50 cases. So this pandemic is not under control of the BOP. Karen Yee is a reporter covering New Jersey for WNYC and Gothamist. Karen, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. We're not just seeing major COVID-19 outbreaks in Fort Dix prison. Cases have been popping up across the United States since the pandemic began back in March. Now we're going to zoom out and get an update on the national picture of COVID-19 in our nation's prisons and jails with Lauren Brinkley-Rubenstein, an assistant professor of social medicine at UNC Chapel Hill and the head of the COVID-19 Prison Project. Lauren, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So how quickly has COVID-19 spread in the prison population compared to the general population? It spread very quickly. At the very beginning of the pandemic, we saw cases skyrocketing in prisons and jails across the country. You know, seven of the 10 largest single site cluster outbreaks currently are in jails and prisons. About 10% of the incarcerated population has been infected with COVID-19. And we see that the, the gap between the general population and the incarcerated population in terms of rates continues to rise. 
We've been talking a lot about vaccine development and now implementation um, and distribution here in the United States. And um, so far, it's recommended that corrections staff get vaccinated before um, incarcerated people. What's your thought on that? Well, first, I'd just like to say that I think it's really important that um, we're having these conversations and that these recommendations are considering incarcerated people and staff at all. Um, I think that in some ways is unprecedented. I do worry, though, that staff are being prioritized above incarcerated people. In some settings, it makes some sense, right? So in prisons, there tends to be a pretty stable incarcerated population, and staff are really the people who are moving in and out. If we think about jails, 11 million people churn through our country's jails each year. And so that same issue of communication, in essence, between jail settings and the community exists for people who are incarcerated in local jails. And so I think there just needs to be a little bit more nuance to the conversation. And I would argue that people who are incarcerated ought to also be considered in phase one. Let's talk about the the, the ethics of that. Um, incarcerated folks lose a lot of their rights when they are incarcerated. Are they able to, for example, say they are not interested in taking the vaccine? Would it have to be mandated for the population? What are the rights of incarcerated people when it comes to a vaccine? The, the rights of people who are incarcerated to right are diminished. And there are lots of ethical issues uh, that come up when you're thinking about the concept of consent in, in prisons and jails. But what I would say is that incarcerated people ought to have the same rights when it comes to vaccines, certainly, uh, than the general population. So they ought to have the right to refuse a vaccine. And prisons and jails have to think about implementation, the challenges that are inherent in these facilities, and think about how to overcome many of those challenges. To your earlier point about the difference between jails and prisons, prison uh, populations tend to be more stable. Uh, those are people who have actually been convicted and sentenced of their crimes. Jails, on the other hand, not so stable. People could be in and out for a couple days to weeks to months, depending on uh, their ability to uh, pay for their bail. So with a vaccine that needs, at least right now, that needs high uh, storage capacity in terms of very cold storage facilities and also uh, two doses, at least um, in this iteration. Is that even possible to have a vaccine um, in a jail versus in a prison? Yeah, it's a really good question. You're right that the average length of stay in jails is very short. Um, I think that it, it's going to require robust collaboration between departments of health and the jail entities. And so I think, you know, we've, we've, really gotten our feet underneath us relevant to contact tracing and being able to find people in the community when they've had an exposure. And I think much of the lessons that we've learned relevant to contact tracing could really be applied to trying to find people uh, in, in the case if they are released uh, in the community. And so it really just it really underscores the importance of, you know, if jails are going to start the process, then departments of health have to be at the table and have to also be able to find people in the community if they're released. Lauren Brinkley-Rubenstein is an assistant professor of social medicine at UNC Chapel Hill and the head of the COVID-19 Prison Project. Lauren, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. White supremacy is the sickness. Arguably, the biggest and most important puzzle facing the world right now is how to distribute a vaccine and decide who gets it first. Here in the U.S., a group of advisors to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention will vote today on who should be first in line. Two promising vaccines have been submitted to the Food and Drug Administration for review. NPR's Selena Simmons-Stefan is here to talk about all this. Good morning, Selena. 
Morning, Rachel. All right. So this vote today, tell us about this group that is tasked with making such critical decisions. Right. This is the ACIP, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. It's made up of scientists and public health experts who review and make recommendations for all vaccines, mostly the ones that your kids get at the pediatrician. But their job today is to figure out the allocation question for the COVID vaccine. So once the FDA greenlights one or both of these vaccines for emergency use, a complicated distribution process will kick off, and the state officials in charge of distribution need to know who needs to get these first limited doses of vaccines. I mean, it's going to be healthcare workers, isn't it? Right. So those are the people who are most at risk of exposure. And there is wide agreement that healthcare providers will be in this very first tier Mm -hmm. where there's a bit of debate is whether seniors in long term care facilities should be in the very first tier, too, or whether they should be vaccinated after healthcare providers. And some of the issues to consider are will the vaccines work as well in older people, because sometimes there are different efficacy rates in different age groups. At the same time, the burden of deaths among this group is staggering. They represent only 6% of cases, but nearly 40% of deaths. So some members of the committee have indicated they're not in favor of this plan. So there may be some spirited discussion at today's meeting. Later tiers include essential workers like police officers, people who work in grocery stores. After that will likely be seniors over 65 and those with underlying conditions. But the vote today is just about that very, very first group. Okay. So what's the timing look like? I mean, when when could we actually see this first tier get vaccinated? Well, both Moderna and Pfizer have submitted data from their vaccine clinical trials to FDA for review. There's an FDA meeting on December 10th to consider the Pfizer vaccine, and they'll consider Moderna's a week later. And then it will be either days or weeks until the FDA makes its decision. There's been some mixed messaging from federal officials on exactly how long that part of the process will take. When the FDA gives its okay, states will kick off their plans uh, into gear to start distributing those very first vaccine doses. I mean, and what about the, the state's planning? I mean, is all that laid out at this point? Well, states have all crafted plans, and those plans have been reviewed by CDC. They've gotten notes back. And now several states are doing full-scale dry runs of distribution of the Pfizer vaccine, and that's the one that needs ultra-cold storage, which makes the planning super complicated. I talked to Dr. Nirav Shah about this. He's the head of Maine CDC, and here's what he said. We are way beyond where are our freezers and where is our dry ice. We did that weeks ago. We are now at the stage of what sizes of ultra cold dry ice gloves do we need to be ordering? Like, okay, we've got 17 people. How many are mediums? How many are larges? How many are smalls? How many goggles do we need to be ordering for people who are going to be handling the dry ice? Huh. He, he said they're literally measuring how much space is available in their ultra-cold freezers to figure out how many vials they could fit. So that's why this advisory meeting today is so critical. Officials like Shah need to know who's first in line to get the vaccine so they know where to send those first doses once the FDA gives that green light. Got it. NPR Selena simmons Duffin. thanks for all your reporting, Selena. Thank you. Medical apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the present. Well, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is meeting today to vote on who should be the first to get the coronavirus vaccine once one's available. This comes as drug makers Pfizer and Moderna are seeking emergency regulatory approval of their vaccines for widespread use, with Pfizer set to be reviewed by the FDA on December 10th. Moderna's review will be a week later. 
The coronavirus is raging across the United States, with 4 million cases in November alone. The pandemic is disproportionately impacting African-American, Latinx and indigenous communities and exposing longstanding inequities and systemic racism in our health care system. These same communities are underrepresented in clinical trials for COVID-19 vaccines, due in part to centuries of abusive treatment at the hands of medical researchers. Researchers. We're beginning today's show with someone whose work focuses on how systemic racism undermines the health of people of color. She herself participated in Moderna's vaccine trial, in part as a way to honor her late father and to ensure African-Americans are included in these studies. Dr. Chris Purnell is a public health physician in Newark, New Jersey, where hospitals in the early days of the pandemic were described as bursting at the seams with Black and Latinx patients infected with COVID. Around the same time, her father, Timothy Purnell, was hospitalized and tragically died from COVID complications on April 13th. Soon after, her sister Kim, a breast cancer survivor, was diagnosed with COVID. She's still suffering from long-term symptoms. Their father, Timothy Purnell was recognized by New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, who tweeted about how he, quote, worked his way up from the groundskeeping crew at Bell Labs to becoming a member of the technical staff. For more, Dr. Chris Purnell joins us from Montclair, New Jersey. Dr. Purnell, it's great to have you with us. Our condolences on the death of your father. Um, can you— just take us on the chronology of what happened with your dad, what a remarkable man he was, and then ultimately your decision to be a participant in the Moderna trial. Sure. Thanks for having me this morning. So if we can think back to the spring when things were just really beginning to explode in New Jersey, in particular in Essex County and centering on North New Jersey, which was unfortunately an epicenter of the pandemic, um, when hospitals were starting to restrict visitation, when cases were starting to pile up, my dad unfortunately got admitted to a local hospital just a mere four miles away from where I work. Um, he went in for an unrelated cause. Um, he actually was stable. He was laughing. He was talking. He was talking about eating his favorite foods. And then suddenly one day he became violently ill. He had uh, vigorous chills, fevers, difficulty breathing, and we were concerned. His medical team was concerned. And after having several of those episodes, unfortunately, he had to be tested and he tested positive. When my father tested positive, it was very much in the early days of this coronavirus pandemic when there was little that we knew about how to treat coronavirus, little that we knew about how to sustain life. And unfortunately, we couldn't be there in person with him. Um, I could at best speak with him over the phone or family members could speak with him virtually. And then he just grew too weak. He grew too tired. Um, I think I last heard my father's voice the Thursday before he died, and he died on a Monday. And tell us and, who he was. Sure. My dad, I tell people, was heroic. I, I thought he was the bionic man. Here you had a, a man who came up during the Jim Crow South, um, who came north um, during a time that many blacks did, following a migratory pattern, fleeing systemic racism, even the terror 
of the Jim Crow South and settled in the, the North New Jersey and New York area. Um, ultimately, my father became a research scientist, but not before he took on a host of odd jobs. And one was being a, a groundsman on the famed Bell Labs campus. Um, my father always had a knack for math and science, but college wasn't a possibility for him in the 1950s in Richmond, Virginia. And so one fateful day led to another fateful opportunity and my dad was self-taught. He would read textbooks at night. Um, he would go to classes provided at the lab by some of the PhD scientists. And he, he assumed the research throne, I like to say. He was a part of definitely groundbreaking work at Bell Labs. And more importantly, he fought and he advocated for blacks to have equal opportunities and access to fields and research. And uh, Dr. Purnell, uh, your father was not the only member of your family afflicted by the uh, coronavirus. Could you talk about the uh, experiences of other family members and then your decision to participate uh, in, a, uh, in the vaccine trial? Sure. I've been saying clearly, it is so important to put a face to this pandemic. It is so important to put a face to the science. When we talk about how coronavirus has disproportionately impacted black and brown lives, I oftentimes point to my own story. So here, the week where we buried my father through a virtual ceremony, my sister was confirmed positive with coronavirus. My sister, who is a breast cancer survivor, um, works in an essential retail industry and likely got exposed on her job, um, became sick. She wasn't hospitalized, but she was sick at home. We closely monitor her. And here, what almost eight or nine months later, my sister still has lingering after effects of the infection. Um, she just got off of supplemental oxygen. She has not yet returned to work. So that's that disproportionate impact. And even this past Sunday, unfortunately, I lost another relative. I lost a beloved cousin to a coronavirus who suffered a catastrophic stroke. Uh, and then in terms of your decision to participate in the trial? Sure. You know, my father's death, um, what I saw my sister go through, what I saw the patients at our safety net hospital in Newark encounter and deal with, and being a public health physician, I needed a way to be a part of the solution. You could say it put a fire in my belly. Um, I believe in public health science, obviously, as a public health physician, and I wanted a way to be a part of that science. My dad would frequently say to me, he would say, follow the science, follow the data, and an opportunity was made available. Um, our hospital, in conjunction with a local academic medical institution, was a sponsoring site. So I was able to volunteer, and I did not hesitate at that opportunity. I knew what was known at that time from phase one research. And I knew also that no serious medical event had happened in phase two. And I knew it was important for black and brown persons to participate if we were ever to get at a truly effective solution. And can you talk about were there effects, side effects? Um, people um, are describing uh, feeling sick for a day or two. I mean, it is astounding, Dr. Purnell, that with your uh, dad who's died, with your sister who's a long hauler, that you were willing to go through this even as you treat COVID patients. So let me let me talk about that. So I, I'm not a frontline provider. I, I work in leadership, but I'm definitely um, a part of an institution caring for those frontline patients. 
But I would say to you, I had to, I had to do something, right? I saw my community decimated and understanding the legacy of systemic racism. That's why this pandemic has disproportionately impacted black and brown lives. I needed a way to say, can we get at an effective solution to beat back this pandemic? So I enrolled. Um, I am very much aware of the legacy of medical experimentation, the legacy of medical exploitation, but this was an opportunity to be a part of something that was rooted in sound ethical practice and upheld informed consent. And so when I got my first injection at the end of August, I could tell you it felt like when I got my flu vaccine, right? I had local pain or soreness at the injection site. Um, I did have some headaches and things of that nature, but nothing too out of the ordinary or nothing that was concerning from my baseline. In addition to that first injection, I had the second injection in the very early days of October. That experience was a little bit different. I can tell you that day, by the end of that day that I got that injection, I felt extreme fatigue. Um, I was telling this story. I felt like I, I couldn't get out of my car. Um, I just felt overcome with excessive fatigue. In addition to that, I had a more severe headache. But I can tell you those symptoms didn't last longer than 24 to about 36 hours. And for me, it was worth it. I don't know if I was in the placebo arm or if I was in the active vaccine candidate arm. But the experiences I've had to date, they've been worth it. And Dr. Pernell, could you talk about some of the historic barriers to getting people of color, particularly African-Americans, to want to participate in vaccine trials? There's a natural skepticism because, as you mentioned, of the legacy of, of previous experiments done on people of color. Sure. We can go back to slavery when Dr. Sims was doing gynecological procedures on enslaved black women without anesthesia without their consent. They weren't even considered human beings. Uh, we could talk about how black bodies were robbed from cemeteries um, out of that Civil War era to um, allow medical students to learn anatomy and dissection. We could talk about um, the unfortunate and infamous experience of the Tuskegee syphilis study, where we had a treatment for syphilis, but that was withheld to study the natural progression of the disease in black men. We could talk about Henrietta Lacks, um, a black woman in segregated Baltimore who had metastatic cervical cancer and had tissue samples taken from her womb unknowingly that have become one of the most productive cell lines that have led to groundbreaking research. We could talk about Mississippi appendectomies, or where we're describing where black and brown women have undergone for sterilizations under the guise of something else. There are a host of examples in the literature, in the lived experience that is weighed on the collective psyche of the black and brown community. But in addition to what's happened in the past, we in healthcare, um, I, I describe it as we're, we're still grappling with systemic racism, right? We're still grappling with inequity that lead to um, staggering healthcare disparities, whether it is disproportionate uh, disease prevalence rates or whether it is implicit bias that impacts provider and patient interactions, there is a truth that we cannot deny. And I'm very, very well cognizant of that truth. And my work centers on health equity and health justice. So it's so important as we go into community 
Can we talk about what tools we do have to beat back this pandemic and clinical research being one of them, which has gotten us to the point where we have two vaccine candidates applying for emergency use authorization. We have to center that conversation in transparency and authenticity. And then we have to demonstrate trustworthiness. We in academic medicine, we in healthcare, so that we can win back, that we can cultivate uh, trust in these communities that have been historically excluded and disadvantaged. And Dr. Purnell, we're going to ask Dr. Monica Peake this question as well in a minute at the University of Chicago. Um, but your thoughts on what's being proposed now to increase participation, and that is paying people to take the vaccine. I think John Delaney, the former Democratic presidential candidate, former congressman from Maryland, is proposing something like $1,000, $1,500. Your thoughts on this? I'm against that. Um, I'm against that because I think that's an unfair inducement. Um, having a financial incentive such as that, the people who would be most sensitive to that are those who are struggling with poverty. And we, we can't have any shortcuts. We just have to do the hard work. And the hard work is demonstrating trustworthiness. The hard work is beating back the misinformation and the disinformation and hearing people's fears and concerns and allowing science to, to listen with an empathetic ear and then to demonstrate why this is the right choice, why this is so necessary to improve um, our communities. I, I don't think paying people is the way to go about it. I think, actually, that is a short-changed result that doesn't center itself in a health equity approach. Chris Purnell, we thank you so much for being with us, public health physician in Newark, New Jersey, Moderna vaccine trial participant. Thanks for being with us. My friends, but I'm in friends. <laughs> I'm just saying. Holding police officers to account for abuses has been one of the most high-profile issues of 2020, particularly in the United States, where the Black Lives Matter movement was given huge momentum after the killing of the African-American man George Floyd by a white police officer. The focus now, though, is on France, where on Monday there were two developments. A court put four officers under formal investigation after a video was published showing police beating a black music producer. And the French government made a U-turn over a controversial clause of a proposed new law that would restrict the filming of police. Well, the former French interior minister and leader of President Macron's party in parliament, Christophe Castaner, explained why they were making the change. The legislative choice we made has allowed a doubt to take root, even if it's not a conviction among the population, that the right to information, that the very exercise of legitimate control over police actions, was under threat. David Chazan is our correspondent in Paris. I put it to him that President Macron was said to be extremely angry about this legislation. Yes, because it was very damaging to his image, because the last thing he wanted was for his government to be seen as infringing free speech in any way. And Article 24 of this bill would have made it a crime to publish any images identifying police officers with the aim of causing them physical or psychological harm. Now, this would have been punishable by up to a year in prison and a fine of $54,000. And the government's apparent U-turn came after more than 100,000 people took 
part in rallies at the weekend protesting against the bill, which they believe would have infringed the freedom of the media and made it more difficult to curb police violence because opponents of the legislation believed that this would have, for example, made it very difficult for news channels to film protests where police often got involved in clashes with protesters. What do you think would have to be in this new version to allay fears amongst the, and anger amongst the protesters? I think it'll need to clarify that news organisations will still have the right to film police intervening in protests and there'll have to be some reassurance that filming of normal filming of police officers will still be allowed. But uh, this does come at a time when French police do feel under threat either from uh, Islamist militants or from others in society who, who bear them ill will. Yeah, I can understand the French government has conflicting concerns there. But uh, let's go back to this uh, government rethink or U-turn, whatever you want to call it. it. It came at a time when there's, we're hearing now, a formal investigation after this video was published showing this police beating uh, of a black music producer, I, I suppose underlying the importance in many people's eyes of this U-turn. Yes, that's right. And the U-turn, if we want to call it that, was announced shortly before four police officers were placed under formal investigation for assault in connection with the beating up of a black music producer in an incident that was captured on camera. Now, the producer, Michel Zecler, alleged that the officers racially abused him and used racist insults. Now, until footage of the incident emerged, uh, the police officers had accused the 41-year-old producer of resisting arrest and attacking them. After the video came to light, however, they changed their version of the incident and they admitted that they had not had justified cause to strike him. They said they'd acted out of fear, but they denied using racist insults. And they said that they approached Mr. Zeclair because of a strong smell of cannabis emanating from him and half a gram of the drug was allegedly found in his bag. David Shazan. So what does the latest incident in Paris tell us about the wider issues of racism in France? Aurélien Mondon is a senior lecturer at the University of Bath in the southwest of England who specialises in right-wing populism and racism. What does he make of people saying this is a rare occurrence which shouldn't tarnish the whole police force? Well, I mean, this is, this is an assessment that we hear time and time again. And I think, you know, this is an assessment that we've heard time and again, not just in France, but we've heard, we've heard time and again in the United States and in other countries that have been uh, dealing with, with police brutality that, is, uh, that, is, that tends to target racialized minorities. So I think, you know, these are, these are poor excuses uh, at a time when uh, it's becoming clearer and clearer that uh, there is a lack of accountability and a lack of uh, and a, and a really close to total impunity uh, with regard to these kind of events. So so I think this kind of defense is expected uh, and, and I expected to see them coming out. But but I think they will be harder these days to 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 push um, to push forward, really, because they are 
systemic issues of racism in France as there are in other countries. And when you say there are systemic issues of uh, racism in France, inside the police force, is that what we're talking about? Or, or, or just generally speaking? Because there is a, there is a real issue here, isn't it, about the, the, the police acknowledging this or not. And if this video had not come to light, one imagines that the feeling of impunity amongst the police who carried it out was that their version of events would be believed. Well, absolutely. But I think you, you cannot separate the uh, the kind of systemic racism in within the police uh, and the systemic racism within French society, because both are linked in many ways. And this is also partly where uh, the, the law is going and, and, and why the, uh, this kind of the part of the law uh, is, is being uh, condemned and criticized widely, not just in France, but beyond this idea that we should not be able to kind of film uh, police officers uh, at demonstrations where, where violence happens or, or outside of demonstrations in, in other places as well, uh, which would lead to further cover-ups. Um, you know, there's been there's been this video that has emerged. There's been another video that has emerged as well of, of police officers uh, who were uh, incognito, who who stopped uh, a car about a year ago as well, um, and and you know acted very very violently. So these these are only the tip of the iceberg. These are the excess of violence that we see uh, that have been filmed, that have had kind of evidence, uh, but but how many haven't had evidence? You know, how many people are actually uh, completely left in the dark uh, to deal with these kind of things, and, and the police acts with with impunity. Aurélien Mondon talking to my colleague Razia Iqbal. Well, two victims were speaking about the uh, Wawa. They're like these gas stations that they've been uh, uh, opening up around town. And uh, one of them was saying that, oh, I don't like to go uh, parking around late Saturday night. Uh, You know, these young people, young people are out there playing all this loud music. I just don't like doing it. In the city of Ashland, Oregon, a black teenager was shot and killed outside a hotel last week. A white resident of that hotel is accused of murder. Jefferson Public Radio's April Ehrlich reports in the aftermath. A couple of hundred people have gathered for a vigil at the Jackson County Courthouse. Black community leaders chose this location to send a message to the district attorney handling the shooting of 19-year-old Aiden Allison in Ashland that there needs to be justice. Aisha Wand is drawing Ellison's name in big chalky letters at the courthouse steps. It's just horrific. The tragedy is horrific, and it happens too often. It's hard for me to talk about it. I have a 16-year-old boy, and I worry about him as well, being out at night, being out with his friends because of incidents like this happening. Ellison had been playing music in a hotel parking lot in Ashland, a small city just south of here, when 47-year-old Robert Keegan asked him to turn it down. They were both guests at the hotel. According to court records, the two had an argument. Then Keegan went back to his room and returned with a gun. Police say he then fatally shot Ellison in the chest. Keegan now faces several charges, including second-degree murder. The FBI says it's investigating whether federal laws on bias were violated in this shooting. Kayla Wade grew up here and helped organize Ellison's vigil. We're here because a white man thought that a young black kid just expressing himself and listening to music was unacceptable and needed to be dealt with. About 80 percent of people in this county identify solely as white. Less than 2% are black. 
Many black people say they encounter racism every day, even in a town like Ashland, where there are Black Lives Matter signs in many front yards. Andrea Wofford is Aiden Ellison's mother. She moved with her two sons and her daughter to Ashland several years ago. We came out here from California for a camping trip and fell in love with the mountains, the greenery. Her son had been living at the hotel when he was killed. He had recently lost his job at a Burger King that burned down in a wildfire this summer. Keegan was also living at the hotel. His house was among the 2,400 homes that were destroyed by the same fire. Wofford says her son Ellison had an infectious smile, and he would wear himself thin trying to make everyone around him happy. And he loved music. She gets emotional, recalling how much he struggled being one of the few black people living in Ashland. There's two rules here. Smile and be whitewashed. Because you can't dance. You can't have your music. You have to talk a certain way because no one understands what you're saying. And you have to recreate your whole self. And it angered him. It angered him so much that he could not be who he was, but everybody else could. And if you don't submit here, you're a problem. You're a problem. Wofford says the death of her son, Aiden Ellison, is a loss for this world, but a gain for heaven, where she says he is free to be black now. For NPR News, I'm April Ehrlich in Ashland, Oregon. Remember, no one is going to treat you special just because you are black. A former Lehigh University student could now face 20 years in prison after admitting to poisoning his roommate's food and drink. WFMZ's Allie Reed is joining us live in Northampton County with details on the former student's case. Allie? Hasiel, after negotiating a plea, Yukai Lang has pleaded guilty to attempted murder. Now, all other charges will be dropped as the 24-year-old will be sentenced. Former Lehigh University student Yukai Yang has pleaded guilty to attempted murder. He's facing 6 to 20 years in state prison with a maximum sentence of 40 years for allegedly poisoning his college roommate by putting thallium in his food and drinks. In exchange for the plea, the Northampton County District Attorney's Office is dropping all other charges. On Monday, it was announced Yang bought the thallium online during the first week of March 2018. It was around the same time when roommate Juwan Royal began to feel dizzy and his vision became blurry. He blacked out and was taken to the hospital, later detailing in court his extreme weight loss, headaches and heart palpitations as a result of the poisoning. In April 2018, Royal was diagnosed with heavy metal poisoning after his parents took him home to New York State. The Northampton County judge deemed Yang's offense gravity score as a 14, a scale that helps determine the length of a possible prison term. Last month, the prosecution entered hundreds of pages of Royal's ongoing medical issues. So now the biggest question remains why. Royal told the judge in October that he couldn't pinpoint anything that signaled a drastic turn in the friendship over the four years the two lived together. Yang says he's been diagnosed with depression and a possible schizoid disorder. Now he'll serve at least his minimum sentence here in the U.S. before facing deportation due to his expired student visa. 
as it stands, Yang's sentencing is planned to go on January 21st. We will have a crew here to follow. That sentencing, of course, will bring updates later on into the new year once we have those. For now, life here in Northampton County, Allie Reed, 69 News, back to you in studio. Thank you, Allie. Are you crazy? The tie behind the chainsaws. If you're in a horror movie, remains behind bars tonight, charged with a hate crime after a victim and multiple witnesses say he chased a woman outside of her apartment complex with a chainsaw while yelling multiple racial slurs. New at 10, Tulane Dulles Wiltsey sat down with a woman and has more. On Saturday afternoon, 25-year-old Norma Nemox was being dropped off by her sister. That's when she first noticed a man standing in this window on the second floor. I see a man with a chainsaw in his hand, and he rips open the door, standing in the middle part of that flat part of the stairs, and he's standing at the top of the stairs. And he says to me, excuse my language because it's about to get vulgar, he says, what's up, Nemox says she made it about halfway up these back stairs when the man began chasing her. Started up his chainsaw and he said, get off of my property. So he started chasing me down the stairs with the chainsaw all the way until we got to the end off the property. And then he like stopped chasing me across that street. That man, 41-year-old Daniel Stewick, left the complex after the incident. The woman says he got back when police were there, and that's when they arrested him. In an interview with LPD, Stewick claimed that black people had been stealing from him and that, quote, she was guilty because she was black. The neighbor upstairs said that he was starting his chainsaw in his apartment all day, and I guess when he seen me, he just found his victim. Numak says she's contacted her landlords, but they haven't said if he will be allowed to return. She says it's no longer just a safety issue for her and her five-year-old son, but for the whole complex. Something that you hear in movies, somebody like being chased with a chainsaw, is just unreal. Stewick remains cited and lodged in the Lancaster County Jail tonight with terroristic threats as a hate crime, which is a felony. Reporting in Lincoln, Ellis Moldsey, 1011 now. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, December 5, 2020. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have observations, suggestions. The number 720. 720- 716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate number again 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Many things uh, to get to. Number one, uh, no disrespect intended, uh, no minimization of the terrorism that uh, Norma uh, Nymox experienced uh, in having this race soldier uh, brandish a chainsaw call her a nigger and then chase her away from her residence uh the complex where i guess they both lived 
I can explain how I ended up the the way that I led into that segment. It had the clip from the commercial where they were being goofy uh, about horror movies and and all the rest of it. And when I was looking at this segment, I was stupefied and just saying like, wow, this is, I said it like right in the first 30 seconds, like this is like out of a horror movie or something like chased with a chainsaw. Like, don't they? I'm even thinking from like the racist perspective, like don't they have stickers on the chainsaw? Like do not run with the chainsaw. Like even if I am going to kill the Negro, like maybe a gun, you're not even really supposed to run with that. You just get stable and aim, but like a gun, maybe bow and arrow, like you don't have a better weapon of choice, even a drone, right? You're going to chase someone down with a bow, excuse me, with, a chainsaw. So the first 30 seconds, I'm thinking, wow, this is like a movie. Like, what is going on? And then you heard like about 90 seconds into the clip, she said it was like something out of a movie. I was like, oh, okay. I, pff, me and Miss Nymox, we are in the same uh, perspective uh, on this event. It is total terrorism, white supremacy. I'm not minimizing it. It was, I'm stupefied. Like, who chases someone with a chainsaw? racist man racist woman racist child and did you hear he justified this act of terrorism he said uh, black people have been stealing from me and I know she's guilty because she's black had that segment in there about the juries where they don't reach consensus but they still find a way to convict the nigger and then they're going to tell me that OJ I know he did it I know OJ's guilty I know he's guilty, right? But I know she's guilty and OJ because they're black. So I had to get my chainsaw. Couldn't make it. I was going to give my little tired, you know, hunker down and all that. But I mean, she was trying to go home. Number two, uh, a caller in Florida. You heard him. I used the segment that was just. Uh, like nine days ago, I believe that was on workplace racism. And even I had to go back and listen. He said that was other victims. He can correct me if he's listening, but I think that was other victims. He said who were talking on the job, but like, man, I hate going to the Wawa. They got all these folks out here playing loud, young people, they got all these young people out there. They said, uh, Aiden Ellis was 19. He might qualify as a young person. We got all these young people out here playing all this loud music. Oh, like wow is that a death sentence like loud music and pow I guess I can get my tired repetition and say uh, I think what has it been no verbal confrontations this year my addendum to that has been if it's a white person you should be thinking ooh this person might have a firearm Ooh, this person might be with five other white people who also have firearms. No need for unnecessary risks. Said fella might have had a brand new firearm. They said that about all the ammunition. This is gun territory. All of this uh, out here, Washington State, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, that this whole uh, region. Gun Haven, white supremacy haven, which is the whole known universe, but guns in particular. Uh, so yeah, I've been saying that for a reason. 
Uh, I'll continue to say that one probably don't want to have any altercations like that. Very been saying that too. This is not the time to be out lollygagging. And ha- I've been saying that all year long. I've been saying it for a variety of reasons. So sad to hear that about Mr. L. That might be another example of black male privilege, right? Black males can go out. Good old Jordan Davis, be loud and play the uh, loud Negro music, right? Terrorize the whole neighborhood with their auditory noise. Black male privilege, yes. Uh, speaking of black male privilege, so they have the segment we were just talking about roommate situation. Uh, if you are a young person, college, university, they had the story some years ago, the black female, she was poisoned by her roommate. Uh, she stuck her toothbrush. She was a white female. She stuck the toothbrush brush in her anus, uh, and was terrorizing roommate, calling her a Jamaican Barbie and all the rest of this. Um, they had, uh, we were just talking on neutralizing workplace racism. We have a young fella. He's going to be moving in. We think with potentially three white male roommates, maybe two white male roommates and one non-white person with a white parent. But, uh, man, a, a, a challenging situation, uh, for a variety of reasons that we were talking about, us a lot of hazards and that type of thing. And, and things you want to be alert about with a roommate situation, if I was that young scholar's parent, I would make sure that he sees this report. Take it very seriously. And this was a non-white, non-black person, Yukai Yang. And he even had the audacity to say, I don't know why I've been poisoning the nigga. I don't know. His roommate, the victim, he's like, I, I couldn't tell. We didn't have, you know, a brawl or anything. Just got it in his mind, I guess, one day. I'm going to poison the Negro. Yes, I'm going to poison the Negro. That is the system of white supremacy. Violence against black people is fun anytime for any reason. In fact, you don't even need a reason. Poison a black person? Let's get started. Black male privilege. Yes. Uh, Let's see. The clinical trials, my goodness. Uh, We had a person who wrote in. There were lots of clips uh, about the vaccines. I thought it was really important, the prison component, because I'm not sure how much attention uh, that's getting. I didn't hear too many of the folks that are in greater confinement saying the Rona is fake. Wasting all this time talking about the Rona. We could be talking about other things, getting me some more phone cards, getting me out of greater confinement. Y'all are wasting time talking. I didn't hear too much of that from the folks in greater confinement. I haven't heard any of that from the folks in greater confinement. In fact, person wrote in, I was wondering what is your take as well? Before I even get to that, do you notice? Cause we talked last week, we talked about all the vaccine stuff, the same thing, getting black people in the clinical trials and all the rest of it. Last week, they talked about the Tuskegee syphilis experience this week it was the Tuskegee syphilis study, which is, I guess a little bit better. It's better, certainly better than experience, but is is that now outlawed? Like you can't say Tuskegee syphilis experiment? Because I feel like that's, hey, that's what it is. You know, I feel like that even, that's that's more sinister than even study. Like this is an experiment. We sat out to research in detail the negro 
deterioration from syphilis. But I'm just pointing that out. it may be it's no difference. I'm sure if you look, if I get 30 seconds of free time, I am sure syphilis, or excuse me, experiment, study, they're probably synonyms. But just, or you all can share, maybe that's something to discuss. Tuskegee syphilis experiment, Tuskegee syphilis study. Is there a difference? No difference. Maybe, you know, what, what is the metaphor? We're splitting hairs. Anywho, so our caller wrote in about the vaccines. I was wondering what is your take as well as the cows listeners opinions on the COVID-19 vaccine. I'm a victim that is still learning, but cognizant enough to understand the links of white supremacy. When I attempt to have these conversations with other victims, I get the impression that I sound like a conspiracy theorist when I bring up ex experiments she didn't say studies uh and how treacherous our government is i am very skeptical skeptical i have not had a flu vaccine in over 25 years and only got then one then due to the work environment at the time it was mandatory i've said that i was looking for that context to see work environments i haven't found as much of that yet but i'm sure that will be coming because some people might work in professions where you will be required essential workers they say to get a vaccine i try to maintain a healthy lifestyle however i do understand that this COVID 19 thing is real take it serious not sure of how it began, very suspicious, uh, suspicious and the motives, but I know it is real. Lastly, I read an article that Clinton, Bush, and Obama are going to take the vaccine to prove to skeptics that it is okay. Wink, wink. As Mr. Fuller says, if you don't understand white supremacy racism, everything that you do understand will only confuse you. I've heard that a few times. Uh, I did see the reports about the former presidents uh, being willing to take the vaccine on television. I commented about that. I said, one, all of those folks, with the exception of President Obama, and even he is not, you know, a 20 year old, uh, all of those uh, males are rather old. They can be reckless with their life. They could die tomorrow from what they call natural causes, you know, all of them being the age that they are, exception of Obama. Uh, I also said, speaking of victim, I remember. When President Obama went up to Michigan and gulped down all that yummy poison Flint water, all that delicious lead uh, and said, oh, it's fine. Drink it up. Get a gallon of it. It's delicious. Best water I've ever. Didn't he do that on camera? So I don't care who they pull out. This is another one to pull out my metaphor of the month. You can roll out Johnny Cochran, the late my mom, Mr. Fuller, and have all of them get the vaccine on television. I don't care. I'm still learning. I'll be waiting to get a little bit more information. I'm not going to be. Yeah, let me. And I'm particularly because they keep making all these reports talking about, oh, man, the Negra is hesitant. CNN had a report today. The Negra is hesitant about getting the vaccine. I haven't seen one report, not one. And this one, I take the back and said the Negra and so-called Latinos are hesitant about getting the vaccine. So they included, you know, that black and brown thing again. I have not seen one report. Man, what is up with white people? Forget the vaccine. They won't even wear a mask. Like, what is wrong with white people? Because that has been on display all year long. 
They don't focus on white people in that manner. They'll talk about general suspicion. That's what you heard from uh, Governor Northam. But if you're not going to talk about white people and they have acted a fool all year long, promoting conspiracies all the way up to the White House. The Rona's fake. It's not real. I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm not going to distance. You're not going to make me stay at home and all the rest. of. You're not going to make me close my gun store. They've done that all year long. And now and what I said, you told me all my life. The Negra is hesitant to read books. Chris Rock. The Negra is hesitant to eat well. The Negra is hesitant to graduate from school. The Negra is hesitant to hold down a job. The Negra is hesitant to have protected sex. Anything that's constructive, right? That's what you told me. The Negra won't do it. He's hesitant to do constructive things and be a productive citizen. Why are you all of a sudden now concerned about Nigra's a little bit hesitant about the Rona vaccine. Ooh, we need to allay his fears. Come on. And particularly, and then when you do that, and then you come and it's the Tuskegee, excuse me, the Tuskegee syphilis experience. And in my opinion, the Tuskegee syphilis study, although I will say, <clears throat> Dr. Purnell, she did get a, do a much better job. She didn't just isolate to the uh, Tuskegee. She talked about Henrietta Lacks. We talked about before uh, Rebecca Sklute book club, uh, the Mississippi appendectomy. We talked about that with four sterilizations repeatedly on the cow. So she gave much more uh, detail. I still, I'd almost say, can we not just say medical apartheid? I mention it all the time. Medical apartheid. We could, uh, cause that's discussed. Even the digging up black bodies can't even have any rest in the afterlife. Even I, I think of that. I think, uh, Aiden Ellis's mom said he's he's passed away now. Now he can safely be freely be black in heaven. I don't know, because sometimes you die, you get shot for loud music and then they come and dig up your body and steal your organs. I digress, but I'm glad she brought in the extra information, Dr. Purnell, even though experiment. Uh, if folks want to comment on the vaccine uh, portion, I'm sure the listener who wrote in that would be super appreciative. Uh, normally, compensatory call in. This is the only broadcast uh, that I make the request that we not use metaphors. Uh, man, oh man, I am absolutely thrilled that we're reading about O.J. Simpson at this point. Uh, I do a little research on the O.J. Simpson trial every day. This is my first time, like seriously studying it. Uh, I'm I'm absolutely amazed. That's all I can really say. I'm amazed and I feel like I have learned uh, so much. Uh, again, the only reason we're reading this is because of Jeffrey Tubin masturbating on the Zoom call. That's why we're reading this. Uh, he wrote the book that we're reading. But wow, it has been so informative. The book club is every Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern to 5 p.m. Pacific. We just started. We've only done two sessions and I've been even messing up because I've been doing our normal. You know, let's sprint through and, and do as much as possible. We are going to slow down so that we can even enjoy more. We can really metaphor, put our feet up and enjoy the read with O.J. Simpson, since this is such a I say it is the most important trial in the history of U.S. jurisprudence. I am not a legal scholar, but that's just my opinion. It is extraordinary for so many reasons, uh, extraordinary uh, case to study and learn about the system of white supremacy, racism. And in fact, that clip that played very early on, they were talking about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. 
they were talking about the case where in Louisiana and Oregon, where they have these, where it's it's uh, just if you have non-consensus in a jury, they can still convict. If it's 10-2, they can still convict as opposed to that being what they call a hung jury. Interesting terminology there too. Uh, but thinking about that in the context, because they gave detail right in the context of that clip and saying this was done deliberately to practice white supremacy, to nullify black jurors. If it happens to be that one of the niggers squeaks through and gets the act, ah, shut up. It'll be 11-1. We still get our conviction and boo to the nigra. Boo to the nigra we convicted and boo to the nigra that we muted in the jury, right? We can do that. No, they said explicitly. And it continues that 80% of the defendants who end up with these uh, non-unanimous convictions are black people. They didn't say black and brown people. They didn't say people of color or any of their other tacky phrases. They said black people. Now you come back to OJ Simpson. Woo. So now you end up with one where, wow, we actually got a unanimous acquittal and everybody is mad for 25 years. Oh my God, you cheated. This is the worst outrage ever when you have del- <sighs> Anyway, all of that was metaphor. I, man, OJ Simpson, it is amazing. It is absolutely amazing. That case, white people love stuffing black people in greater confinement. It doesn't matter whether it's truthful. It doesn't matter really whether you're guilty or not. They love it. They absolutely love that. That is one of the have-tos. It's so essential. I think that more than anything is the outrage of O.J. Simpson. Like, how in the world? This nigga, we lock up niggers. That's what we do. It doesn't matter if we cheated or lied, if it was a racist or we planted evidence. All that is irrelevant. We lock up niggers. Anyway, uh, Alan Dershowitz, who defended Jeffrey Epstein years after the O.J. Simpson trial, uh, maybe some Boy Scouts, too. I'm not sure. Alan Dershowitz was interviewed about the Simpson case. They asked him what was the defense theory metaphors. He said the theory of the defense was when you find a certain amount of evidence planting on the other side, you can't trust any of the evidence. So the mountain wasn't enough to convict if a few of the hills and valleys were corrupted. And it was summarized by our expert witness, Dr. Henry Lee, who said, if you find a cockroach in a bowl of spaghetti, you don't look for another cockroach before you throw out the whole bowl of spaghetti. I will stop there. <laughs> but wow, what a metaphor. <laughs> I guess it worked. OJ was acquitted in the criminal case. And there you go. You found one cockroach. You don't need to look for another. I have to remember that one. If you could not use that metaphor today, if you like that one, save it and use it another day. Frequently, uh, racists, white supremacists will use metaphors incorrectly. They will use metaphors to practice deception. Uh, they will take two separate entities and insist that they are identical twins, exactly the same. Frequently, that is not the case. Dershowitz gave us another one I saw today. He said, he said, it's worse to be a Trump supporter than an OJ defender. 
I said, wow, Alan Dershowitz, wow. Uh, Victims of white supremacy, uh, frequently, we are still learning. We don't have logic to articulate our views, so we will switch, add in a metaphor, analogy of some sort uh, for this broadcast. If we could be direct, specific with what it is we're trying to say, that would be appreciated. I will prompt about the metaphors. The number again is 720-716-7300. Decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Could talk about O.J. Simpson for days. Uh, We'll get to the first few folks and then I'll get in another comment about O.J. Simpson. Uh, First few folks who dialed in with a hand up. You have commentary to share. Lines should be open. Proceed. Hello. Hello, Mayor uh, greetings, Irie in Louisiana. The convictions—that's your state. Did you know about that in Louisiana, where they can have a conviction even if the jury is un- not unanimous? Yeah, I heard about it a few years ago because it wasn't the first time that they went to the Supreme Court um, to try to get it, um, you know, uh, fixed or whatever. But like the reporter said, they said, "Yeah, that's not right," and just walked away from it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, um, and I'm not surprised because, I mean, it's the Supreme Court in the system of white supremacy. Um, I'm starting to wonder, uh, as far as metaphors, I, I um, frequently look at the word of the dictionary.com, the sources and stuff like that. And it's almost like they're trying to make the so-called lexicon of American English into a giant metaphor because they keep incorporating words now that either should just be taken as slang or like you were saying uh, in another broadcast jargon for the moment. And it's going to eventually go away. I mean, I guess for reference sake, um, it, it would be cool, but then at the same time, it's like there's a certain amount of com, uh, commitment to certain words that they I can tell when I read the entries and when they feature articles and words and want them used, and they're just they're un they're not going to be clear five years from now what they mean, you know. You and and will you be able to look it up really, like except for dictionary.com, which is privatizing the information on itself. You know, it used to be free, but now they give you like just a word and a truncated um, definition and stuff, and then you got to pay for the rest. Let me hurry up. Um, As far as the virus and the vaccine, I don't plan on taking it. I was given a vaccine when I was enlisted that couldn't be put in my medical record. I've had other um, shots that I had adverse reactions to, and Quite recently, I had a um, a reveille about um, a vaccine that uh, my grandmother took me to um, the city park in New Orleans to get. There was a mass vaccination, um, and I was either in sixth grade or uh, maybe even fifth grade. And um, while I was waiting to be vaccinated, a white nurse, middle-aged, uh, asked me directly if I was pregnant, and I told her no. 
And then um, she had me write down on a piece of paper, I am not pregnant. And then, you know, here it is almost 40 years later. I'm like, damn, you know, these people gave me a vaccine with mercury in it. It had to be or something, you know. So you didn't vaccinate me, you poisoned me. And I'm wondering why I'm experiencing certain things, you know, and it took decades for some of this stuff to occur. So I'm not with it. I'm not, especially if you want to inoculate somebody, why does the RNA have to go into the nucleus of my cells and change up the information? That's more than my body being able to identify this, you know, this thing or whatever. Um, I, I'm not going, I, I'm not saying coronavirus isn't real. It's definitely real, you know, in certain situations, and especially when you live in close proximity with other people, i.e. prison and everything. But if this is just, this is eugenics. This got eugenics written all over it. Um, and the doctor and other people talking about, I'm part of the study. I'm sorry. Like, I feel like there's racial showcase of confusion. Maybe I can't do it. I don't trust these people enough. I don't even want to go to the dentist, like, if I don't have to, and I don't, so I'll be opting out however I can, and I will not take it, even if it means I have to forage off the land, that's how dedicated I am, not taking this vaccine, and I'm my life for now. Wow, she said dedicated, not taking the vaccine, wow, all right, Ivory in Louisiana, I'm going to pause because I said if I got 30 seconds of uh, free time. So I looked. Check the thesaurus online. The word study, S-T-U-D-Y. And the word experiment. They did not come up as synonyms. The word bank for the word study looked showed, pulled up different you know synonyms noun use verb use experiment was not listed when I did the reverse looked up experiment study is not listed as a synonym for the word experiment so I will just say what I said again and I two weeks so that's it, that type of thing like just paying attention to words like some people and if anybody here feels Gus you're a coon you're making a big to-do about nothing. This is a doctor. I'm not a medical professional. There's not that big a difference between the word study and the word experiment. So if that's your perspective, please share that with detail. But I'm just noting that's two weeks in a row. Tuskegee syphilis experience. Tuskegee syphilis study. All of this in the context of having a black person come out and say, oh, man, black people are suspicious. Hmm. You shouldn't be. Come on, get the vaccine. And just for my final word on that, Harriet A. Washington's book in our top 10 is titled Medical Apartheid, the Dark History of Medical Experimentation. Not study, not experience. Jesus Christ. The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to Present. Top 10 in the book club. Man, words are 
important. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, greetings, guys. Uh, greetings to all the callers and the listeners. This is Inyame in Nebraska. Uh, I, I was looking up in my thesaurus at the same time when you were speaking it, and I do not see experiment and study uh, cross-references synonyms either. Um, I did want to comment on the story with, uh, about Norma Lemox as um, the white male who chased her with the uh, chainsaw that, that incident occurred here in a uh, city in which I'm allowed to reside in. Um, one thing that I noticed uh, that really stood out about how the matter was handled was, um, I guess she was concerned for her safety and if the white male would be returning to the property, but they were unable to tell her if he would be banned or not. Uh, I'm sure that usually with cases uh, with matters involving uh, victims if he were to make bonds or get released some way there may be a stipulation that he will have to stay specifically away from her but i'm not sure how that would work if he lives in the same building but um it says a lot if the property owners or the property managers still would allow him to reside on the property especially if he committed a felony against another tenant on the property so I, um, I thought that was quite interesting and uh, I also wanted to note that uh, if anyone wanted to look deeper into the story to uh, uh, be mindful that there is a fictional alternative to the story sort of a reenactment that's actually going viral uh, on YouTube online right now where the uh, the account is given by another uh, black female, but it's sort of a comedic account where um, the story ends with the white male being shot before he's arrested. Um, but it was going uh, around on social media and uh, many people even here were sharing it, but they were unaware that the incident happened differently to a different woman and indeed happened in this very same town. Um, uh, also, uh, I do not plan on taking the vaccine, and I agree with the previous caller that um, I do not trust uh, the medical system here. I try to do my uh, due diligence as much as I can, um, but I am a victim, still learning. Uh, you know, I've been retarded as well uh, under, under the conditions of this uh, system, um, but I had a she said something that stuck out to me. She said she didn't even want to go to the dentist if she didn't have to. And I feel very much the same way, but I'm also an attempted parent. And just yesterday, uh, I made a very difficult decision to take my seven-year-old son to the dentist for the first time as he had been experiencing pain in his mouth uh, around his teeth for quite some time and it had been waking him up uh, at night. We thought maybe it could have been an infection. It's, it's been going on for off and on for about a year, but he hasn't experienced those pains in uh, several months. But since it started happening again, I finally decided to take him to the dentist and they 
I was having a difficult decision to allow them to extract the tooth. Uh, they were going to give him nitrous oxide and um, they call it lycane, which is similar to Novocaine, to numb the uh, the area in the mouth. And but uh, after the procedure was over, you know, um, they because of COVID, they wouldn't even allow me to stay in the room with them. And the entire time, you know, I wanted to just take my son and just leave, but I didn't really have any other alternative as to how to handle that uh, situation to relieve him of the pain and uh, discomfort that he was feeling. But um, I sat out, you know, this is the first time that he's been left unattended around Caucasians or so-called Caucasians uh, um, without me, myself, or his mother. Um and when I, I could just see the look in his eyes that he'd been experiencing some discomfort. And when we left, uh, you know, they were updating me on how the procedure went. But I'm looking at my child, and I had to ask the nurse, uh, this white female, I asked, did he cry? And she kind of downcasted her eyes and admitted. She said, yeah, there, there was a couple big tears at the end there. You, you know, she didn't want to tell me immediately it was just you know it was just business as usual uh for them but she didn't want to tell me immediately about his experience and they knew that was his first uh visit to the dentist and upon leaving the dentist's office uh, my son just he broke down in tears and he said he said daddy they they hurt me you know so um so i've, I've been i've been dealing with that is it, is still uh very difficult to think about uh, they want me to bring him back for uh, more procedures on a couple of his other teeth, but I do not trust them. Um, the experience was uh, is very uncomfortable for us. I'm not sure if I'm going to take him back anytime soon unless he's having uh, severe pain again in his mouth. Um, but, again, I'm <laughs> Uh, limited options as to what I could do as an attempted parent under the system of white supremacy. Um, but that's, uh, that's, that's all I wanted to say. Thanks for letting me share. Wow. Sorry you had to, sorry you and your offspring had to uh, endure that. Um, I know we've had folks before who've talked about trying to just doing the best that you can to find uh healthcare professionals who will be gentle and, and have an experience. So it's not something that's just terrible and really, really painful and try to minimize all that as much as you can. Like, man, that's uh and then that the, you can't be with a child as well. Like, geez, that's uh yeah, that's awful. Um, I hope he's able to recover and uh, can deal with it. Cause I know that trauma can kind of be with you, especially for younger people being in, that kind of pain um man hope he's able to get through it and yeah not have to do any any doctors uh anytime soon like man medical apartheid mm. uh much obliged as well for the i guess additional information on uh the chainsaw incident of white terrorism uh and what <laughs> I can only say take white supremacy racism seriously uh, for some sort of, I guess, parody video to go viral about this incident. Uh, I mean, this race soldier could be released from confinement and back 
in the same apartment complex like now we don't know like this is you know take things seriously uh other folks much obliged in yame other folks who dialed in uh with a hand up if you have commentary to share line should be open proceed folks are getting their thoughts together we should be here uh the book club 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific this thursday uh check out black talk radio network the facebook page you can also check twitter as well uh on twitter at until justice facebook facebook.com forward slash the problem is white people uh, and you can get all the updates for when we have future broadcasts, guests, all the good stuff. I'll have updates there at least 24 hours in advance when we do our live broadcast. Uh, but feel free to be informed. Uh, if you have any questions, you can always drop an email until justice at gmail.com. I'm very proud. Uh, I had to go back and, and redig and had computer problems and all that earlier this year, but I had folks who had requested. Uh, if we could get Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people, uh, if we could have make sure that that gets corrected and placed back in the archives, the uh, entire series uh, should be in the archives. Uh, I'll be sure to post the links and dreams from my father. As I said, I will not be reading President Obama's uh, new book. Uh, which is like a Times bestseller. I think, unless I'm mistaken, I saw reports where it like set records uh, for book sales this week. I guess everybody's stuck at home, so they're going to read his newest. Uh, it does not look uh, informative or engrossing to me, so I'm going to pass. But we did read Dreams from My Father, and that also is in the archives. Uh, it's complete. You can hear it. Well, the audiobook is abridged, and I complained about that mightily during the segment, but at least all the installments are there. So feel free to explore the archives at your leisure. 12 years. Uh, folks that we've not heard from, uh, see, they have their thoughts together. May I be heard? Caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, yes, sir. I uh, appreciate the the uh, the segment on the uh, the Wawa gas station. Uh, that was to black female victims um, speaking about I guess uh, how busy it is at the new Wawa gas stations. Um, And, you know, that segment, that was very interesting how I think that was the mom that was saying that I believe the, uh, the victim who died was saying that I guess he wasn't able to be a black person or something like that, or he couldn't be like everyone else. Um, Just to, 
the reality of the system of white supremacy, the restrictions and the uh, limitations placed on black people, non-white people. Um, and the term, I think, system systemic racism or systematic racism, I think, was used. And that is very um, suave, I guess you can say, how uh, in a slick way white people are able to absolve white people and being racist. And just like how you were saying with the the vaccines, how that's um, being mentioned in regards to non-white people, but the attention, the attention isn't placed on white people and how they've been defiant. Uh, they've been opposed. They've been up uh, into government buildings with firearms and rifles, even attempted to uh, kidnap the governor of Michigan and many other things, but that term white hardly is ever being used. They'll use the um, certain general terms, pandemic fatigue, I think. Uh, they use that word fatigue, but it's like, where is it being shown where enough people have followed the guidelines? So how are people going to be fatigued? You know, uh, that can be confusing right there. But the lack of using the term white supremacy, definitely uh, something to be expected. And that's a good catch with the two terms. Uh, I think it was experience and experiment last week. And I think this week it was study. Those are very, um, I think study and experiment is closer than using that term experience. And I think they would use experience because I think the the syllable count the same experience, experiment, and it's kind of similar like EXP. So they, I think, would use that and get away with it and be slick and racist. Um, I think no one would be able to uh, you know, decipher their uh, their deceitful ways. Um, there was an incident that occurred around here in the uh, city, and I believe it was a cowbell, but it reminded me of that segment where they were talking about the domestic violence. And since we have the drive-through open, they have been getting a lot of cases, but they still do the uh, DV court domestic violence dockets, but it's definitely not the same as it was before the pandemic. Uh, but the victim advocate lady, uh, black female, she hasn't been coming to the courthouse. So I guess they've been doing it through zoom. Uh, hopefully they can do it in a safe way through zoom with all of the chaos and the issues going on with that. Um, but there was a black male that was arrested, but I think it was a cowbell. Uh, he killed uh, a white woman and what they call a, a child that was the product of uh, a black male and a white woman. And the person that I guess they found the victim uh, earlier on today. So 
I wanted to bring that up. I wanted to mention that. And that's all I have to say. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Much obliged, uh, caller in Florida. Uh, first time, last time. That is, uh, I think, a great strategy for dealing with what is called domestic violence uh, for everybody. Make sure that gets endorsed. First time, last time. Uh, I hope they are able to access those services safely if they're doing it uh, via Zoom, uh, as you said. <laughs> Man, I hope they're able to access it safely for many reasons. Don't have any Jeff Tubins breaking in and all the rest of it. And then don't have uh, the abuser uh, terrorist that, you know, is in the same residence uh, making that difficult as well. But I have played a number of her reports where folks have talked about that. They, you know, the terrorism that people say, I mean, if you have someone with a chainsaw waiting for a total stranger you could end up living with that person. So, yeah. Uh, there was, let me make sure before we nap, there was one other report I wanted to make sure I commented on. I think there was an arrest today. Be in Toronto informed me the not effing around organization. I guess I'm glad that we didn't hear anything about it and perhaps we won't have to hear anything else about it like at all um but uh, i think he was prosecuted or yeah he was charged uh with a felony for uh pointing a gun at a federal official yeah i have the report the leader of the nfac is facing charges for allegedly pointing a gun at federal agents uh, this was from a couple of days ago. I did not pay any attention to this organization. I'm not interested in hearing any updates about this organization. When I first heard about them and the report was mentioned that they had a march uh, and one of the individuals, uh, a black person classified as black and shot themselves like follow logic. Follow bold face letters, underline all caps follow the logic we do not need a lot of rhetoric and stomping up and down uh follow gun safety as well i guess chainsaw safety too you're not supposed to run with a chainsaw the gun anyway uh i was not impressed with any of that when i heard it i've seen all that before a lot of the revolutionary rah rah rowdy black people anyway uh, i saw this today uh, he pointed. A, I don't even. I mean, it's not even in my view. It's not even worthy of of reading. Like, eh, that's done, and you know, follow logic. We can saw. How, oh, that was what I. Even the whole point of mentioning that I've said repeatedly. White people have shown it is very easy for them to control and or squash black people with guns. It's no threat at all. Like, have a billion Negro gun clubs. Negro shooting at we've gone shooting at, you know, two out of three cows counter racist yoga retreats. No threat to racist man, racist woman. You do not have the ammunition, the bullets that they have. And I've seen for years this week, the anniversary, Fred Hampton, Mark Clark gunned down in Chicago. No problem. 
taking on Negras with guns and they got a long what they call track record successful track record of handling black people with guns but this would be just another illustration I was going to read some from the report is it worthy of that Let's see federal charges like ooh we like they're going to have to get a new leader of NFAC if he has got federal charges for Brent and this is brandishing a firearm I said what they have pretty serious firearm rules like you generally cannot point a firearm at somebody they would have the place in uh, St. Louis the McCluskey's we were talking about that when the brandishing a firearm is generally a pretty serious offense and you brandished a firearm at a federal enforcement officer find a new leader for the NFAC and follow logic I don't even need the report that's all that needs to be said on that. Uh, other folks dialed in have commentary to share. Can I be heard? Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, you know, I've seen a, a lot of greatness and firearms at law enforcement this year. Um, first person to get arrested, though. Only black person I saw doing it. Um, Governor Kuhnman, question for him should be, was he the man in blackface posing as Curtis Blow, or was he the man in the authentic Ku Klux Klan outfit? Um, I knew he was a doctor, but I didn't know he was a pediatrician. Um, just to put that into the context of the gentleman who was just talking about his son going to the doctor and they didn't let, let him in there in the dentist. You know, you never know. Who's treating your children? Um, and um, this basis has such concerns for the blacks. Um, he wants to give them the vaccination first. Hmm. Uh, another thing he said that was interesting in that piece was the vaccine was not tested on children um, yet. So I wonder what that means for schools going forward. Um, Fort Dix, New Jersey. Somewhere down by Trenton, I've been there before, not as a prisoner in the in the city, uh, but um, I know a few people who were in prison here. Uh, federal, very low security prison. Um, usually, the prisoners are very free, and um, as far as you could be inside of a prison, and um, they generally serve time at a federal facility, and they don't have a lot of time left and they live in the tri-state area so they bring them back there so they can be um sent back to where they live afterwards i suppose um very lenient rules there so i can see there's any type of um infection spreading in that type of condition i don't think i think i mean i do think that vaccinations are mandatory for prisoners i don't think they have the right to um, say they don't want to take it. I believe they're state property. Um, they're civil tier more two, civilly dead. Um, so they don't have, they the, you know, they have to do whatever the people that own them say. Uh, I think the argument about the vaccines that was being presented in that piece could have simply been solved by the correctional officers and the prisoners just taking the vaccination the same day. 
Um, take the same rack, bring them in. They got to give it to the rack, the prisons and the prison guards. Same person, same batch. You know, let it do it that way. Um, in the other reports, they kept saying blacks and Latinx people. I think Latinx people could be a code for Spanish-speaking people who could be mistaken or classified as black if they, um, yeah, that's what I think they are, um, you know, Dominicans, um, you know, darker Cubans and Puerto Ricans. Um, I I haven't seen anything uh, racist about, um, well, we're in a system of white supremacy, but nothing that stood out about the COVID-19 pandemic um, besides them telling us that blacks are disproportionately affected. Um, and I looked at the tally, it's less than 300,000 people who have died. Um, so even if there was all, if they were all black, that would be less than 1% of the black population. The racism in the pandemic, I think, will be the shutdown of the economy um, the total depletion of millions of black people's jobs at a disproportionate rate than whites. That's what I think it's going to be. Um, the Tuskegee experiment, Henrietta Lacks, you know, would you let J. Marion Sims give you a pap smear? You know, um, you know, that's where we're at with this. I don't know. Um, to fund the police, a globalist agenda uh, from Hong Kong to the U.S. to France, Sweden, England, Scotland, Finland, Switzerland, they all have defund the police movements. Hmm. Um, this has to be the most nonsensical idea white people ever got white black people to support. As far as I see, the crime in the black area is beyond the scope required for law enforcement. We are following people who are uh, allowed to loot and riot and create autonomous zones and not get policed, even though they're saying defund the police, it makes no sense. And besides, these people that's pushing this defund the police movement, they don't live where, where they have to deal with shootings and uh, robberies and things like that. Um, and I have more to say on things not related to the clips. I'll mute my line. Thank you. Indeed. Thomas in New York. Much obliged, sir. Uh, I'll give out the number again. 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. see other folks who are with us with a hand up if we've missed you totally proceed can i be heard uh greetings non-clemson grad uh greetings for everyone i hope everyone's doing the best um stuff out there and only getting worse you know people were traveling for uh thanksgiving and you know coronavirus have a cur- uh, cases spiked, which means technically people become, even people who are not engaging in bad behavior, technically become to a certain degree more susceptible because other people that are outside of them, um, you know, are basically, you know, passing around the disease. And that's a little scary right now. So I hope everyone is being safe out there. Um, I'm thinking um, one of the stories I heard earlier, particularly about the one where the Supreme Court is deciding that um, if people were convicted of a case 
an attendant to jury that that's unconstitutional, whether or not those people who were convicted, whether or not they, it, that, that kind of stuff should be retroactive is very interesting. You know, right now we have a whole bunch of uh, cities and states around the country that are, you know, legalizing or decriminalizing uh, marijuana use. And, um, you know, this is allowing uh, white people in particular to start new businesses and, you know, probably become rich from it. But the people who are currently in jail, you know, they don't even get the opportunity to get out of jail, let alone get an opportunity to become one of those business owners because they never have a criminal conviction on their record for something that now white people can make money off of. And which, you know, what's the word for it? Well, clearly unjust when you think about uh, stuff like that. Um, you know, after spending so much, you know, you know, losing their lives for, you know, years, decades. For white people to just come along and say, oh, we're going to make money off of it while the people, they won't, are they even going to get out of jail, let alone be able to start a business to make money themselves? And then, of course, now we live in the age of the vaccine, where in a couple of weeks, it's very possible these vaccines will be, you know, hitting the public, or certain groups will be getting the vaccine right now. You know, a lot of people from, you know, who are in jail who get nothing, not saying they should or should not get the vaccine. Um, but earlier this week, uh, a couple of governors, including like Governor Cuomo of New York and Governor uh, Governor Newsom of California, talking about um, you know the um, over uh, groups that were disproportionately affected by the coronavirus, um, and you know what, what what can we do to make sure that these groups are also included in the distribution of the coronavirus. Um, when I start hearing dis- the language of disproportionate, uh, you know, afflicted by something, I, I personally start getting real suspicious, especially because of the language that's being used right now. So, for example, Governor Cuomo in particular, he said things like, um, because of the history, no, I'm don't, um, not the exact quote, but, you know, because of the history of the black community, um, um, you know, we care, start using quotes from Malcolm, well, sorry, not Malcolm, uh, Martin Luther King and everything like that. And um, basically, we got to make sure that Black people are included in the distribution of the uh, of, of the vaccine for the coronavirus. And obviously, well before coronavirus, you know, Black people were broke, uh, getting evicted from their homes. They were homeless, getting killed by uh, by race soldiers, uh, badge or no badge, like you like to say, um, and all the things that come with being Black in society, which, which you know usually stems, in my opinion, on economic. Uh, issues, black people not having enough resources to take care of themselves and their families, and now all of a sudden the, um, the government is with the vaccination all of a sudden concerned that black people need to be included, why the rhetoric changed, or rather just, you know, why the rhetoric changed now with vaccines, as opposed to all the stuff that was happening to black people before. So you're talking about uh, prioritizing black people for vaccines. Um, I won't say whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's definitely inconsistent with the things that Black people do need to be prioritized for. To me, the language also um, strikes me as reminiscent of uh, Mr. Neely Fuller's language or definition for the word justice without saying the word justice. You know, people who are, who need the most help, uh, should get the most help. Um, and that's the kind of logic they seem to be using when they talk when they talk about you know distributing the coronavirus vaccines, but when it comes to other things like you know resources like people needing housing, people needing well-paying jobs, 
you know, pe people you know, needing healthier things that they need right now to not just have a stable life, but even a potential for even better, a good and better life. Those, those kind of conversations just simply never happen about the people who need that stuff the most. So me personally, I'm kind of suspicious when I hear that kind of language uh, coming uh, from politicians, especially in a pandemic. You know, if you don't care about black people now, um, then I don't see why you should worry about caring about black people now. And I'll leave it at that. Much obliged, non-Clemson grad. And let's see. Following logic. Excellent point. Even just within the context of the Rona, right? Like they've done the same thing. They talked about, oh man, the Negro businesses, they've been disproportionately impacted. And black businesses, we gotta we gotta support black businesses and shop black and all of that. So when they had the paycheck protection program and all the rest. We're going to send out loans and things to make sure that our businesses can stay afloat during these tough times. They didn't do that then say, Oh man, wait a minute, wait a minute. Negra businesses have been disproportionately impacted. So we want to make sure black business owners get this funding, get these loans and support so that they can, you know, get the, that didn't happen. With in fact, they did the exact opposite. They've had all these reports like, man, black people have had a tough time accessing help and resources and the banks don't work with. Them. Why not the same? If you know about that logic, the people who need the most help get the most help. Why can't that be applied to all different assets, at least within the context of the Rona? No, just the vaccine. Lots of suspicion with that alone. Uh, other folks that we have missed totally. Greetings, everyone. Greetings, Gus. Um, with the uh, subject of vaccine with the uh, corona virus, uh, a thought of mine came up uh, to whereas. Uh, thinking that uh, being that the white supremacists are knowledgeable about non-white black people's resistance, they're probably going to place the challenge more on your children to enforce vaccinations. Uh, I would say that uh, I could be wrong, but uh, it, it, it seems like to me there's a lot more of children than they are of parents. <laughs> and uh, so it could be a situation to whereas uh, it could be a forceful situation uh, if you're going to send your children back to this daycare center or this uh, school, the child has to be vaccinated. Uh, it is, uh, as a parent, uh, uh, you, uh, you, you have a challenge. You have a challenge, basically, uh, to uh, be able to provide uh, uh, schooling for the child. Uh, and I just don't think at this moment that it would be millions of black people homeschooling their children. 
I don't think. I could be wrong, but I don't think that would take place. So it's going to be challenging on what decisions are going to be made in regards to if it's a situation to whereas uh, uh, the white supremacist says, well, before you can send that child back to this daycare or this uh, uh, school, uh, they have to be vaccinated, which actually makes the attempted parent uh, situation complicated uh, if you can't have your child at that daycare or that school while you are working. Uh, so it's a complicated matter all, all around. Uh, have been observing Mr. Fuller's program uh, uh, for, for years, and I've noticed uh, a lot of improvement uh, with the uh, the questions, uh, uh, as opposed to statements challenging uh, uh, counter race uh, counter code, uh, and also Mr. Fuller's uh, uh, logical what I, what I think is a logical understanding of of white people and their use of uh, their intelligence to. Uh, practice the global system of racist white supremacy. Uh, a lot of, uh, in a lot of cases, black people uh, like to feel good, so they'll start talking about something that black people was doing uh, thousands of years ago, which is not really relevant to what is going on today. Uh, and uh, the questions are becoming more uh, concise, more, uh, more scripted on uh, to learn more about the actual practice of a counter-racist code. And uh, another ob observation that I had that most of the people that I'm listening to either seems to be or, I, or they have reported that they are a lot younger than I am, and that is very encouraging to, uh, to, hear, to, to observe it. Uh, because, uh, well, I, I'm pretty sure by now the people who are listening to me understand what I'm talking about. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, last but not least, uh, DCS program, uh, everything went well uh, in today's session, uh, including the uh, audiovisual uh, uh, work that was done. Uh, we showed the longer version of the Emmett Till documentary, a longer version to the teenagers, and a shorter version, the one the one that was in the segment on Eyes on the Prize of the Emmett Till uh, uh, situation uh, to the younger children, the below teenage teens. And each, each sessions were a period of time for questions and answers. Uh, the questions and answers, uh, I would say most of us would be very happy on what those young fellows had to ask as far as questions wise. Uh, and uh, it went pretty well. And uh, that's all I have to say. Thanks everybody for listening. Much obliged retired firefighter in Florida. No name calling. Amen.
and getting better at uh, asking questions, refining the questions that we ask. That is always something that is uh, grand, being able to get better information, more refined information. Uh, Glad to hear you all. Things worked out well. The uh, audio visuals and such with the DCS program, helping the young fellas speak clearly, black self-respect, Learn a, bit, learn a little bit or a lot about uh, racism, white supremacy also. Uh, let's see. We have less than 30 minutes left in the program. Uh, any folks that we missed totally? All right. Soon we got everybody. If other folks have uh, additional comments that they want to share, uh, like I said, we have about yeah, maybe 20 minutes or so left in the broadcast. If you think you would like to comment, please do not wait until the last minute. The number 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see. Oh, folks, we missed to, uh, folks that we have missed completely. Proceed. Uh, greetings, uh, callers and listeners, and uh, greetings, Gus. Thank you again for the platform. Um, just uh, one thing that I don't know. I, unfortunately, I, I came in late to the program. as um, just a family thing. But Grand Grandmaster Jay, I believe he was the head of this uh, specific group. And he he's apparently been targeted by the FBI. Um, it's a group for self. It's basically a group for black self-respect or black black self-defense, I should say. And um, apparently, he was targeted by the FBI and the CIA for pointing his gun in the air where they were on the roof watching and monitoring him as they were addressing police officers that were approaching them. Um, it seems like it's a scenario very often that happens with a lot of, um, a lot of black males and a lot of black people trying to practice black self-respect defending themselves, which is, um, I guess you could say when you come out with arms and you're trying to defend yourself, the system will come after you, um, I think immediately. And, and let you know exactly your place, quote unquote, within the system. Um, as they say, check. And uh, right now he's currently in in a, in a in a I believe he's in jail, but I'm not sure for how long in the duration. News I, I just found out about today, actually. So I'm still finding out more information on this. But um, again, it's the um, head of that quote unquote so-called black militia. I wouldn't call it a militia. I'm sure whatever the other term. And um, his name is Grandmaster Jay. Uh, and again, federal charge of assaulting and resisting or impeding certain officers or employees. And this was just for aiming his rifle at a rooftop where he saw Secret Services officers watching him in uh, Louisville for the Breonna Taylor protest back in September. Um, and they say the max amount of sentence time that he would, he would get is 20 years if convicted. Um, helped out of that, just um, health updates, just trying, I'm out, I'm not in a 
on the East Coast. I'm currently in California right now and looking forward to kind of getting back to being back in the East just so I can be back in my own residence and kind of eat my own food and things of that nature. I've noticed that whenever you travel and do certain things, you kind of, next time I'll be more mindful of certain things that I'm taking with me to me and sort of even like a meal plan when I am away, even if I'm staying with people that um, are healthy or try to eat healthy as well, just so I can have my own meals because it's almost like I got to go back now and do a full detox. Um, and But that, that should be all. With that said, I will mute my line. Thank you. Uh, yes, sir, Rob. Also in California, I was just going to say really quick, we did that whole program this week talking about uh, getting your children to not eat McDonald's. And a big part of that is you as an attempted parent not eating McDonald's and other garbage. Uh, but that is really important because you have some folks who, you know, are traveling, you know, spending more time on the road and what have you. Uh, so it's not possible. You might not have uh, time to be in the kitchen as much to prepare healthy meals. So that can be a great that McDonald's might be, you know, the only option or one of limited options. Uh, what I would say, if uh, if you're traveling, if you get to uh, a point where you're stopped, right, you, if you're staying at a friend's house, because that, that can be a problem, too, if you are friends and staying with people who have a poor diet and you're eating what they prepare. If you can, at minimum, <clears throat> get to a grocery store and just have, like, basics. Trader Joe's, if you're in California, they have Trader Joe's everywhere. Like, you can get basics, and I think once you kind of get just some fundamental things that you like, you should be able to go there and just because they'll always have like chickpeas and other types of beans, rice, fruits, vegetables, like lots of ways where you can, you know, prepare simple meals that don't take a whole lot of time uh, in the kitchen. You'll still be full. It won't be, you know, gourmet, like pecan pie and things that I had this week. But when you can still eat well and feel like, you know, you're not having to compromise and eat a lot of poison uh, just because you're you know, working and not at your residence. Uh, Rob in SoCal. Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, guests, listeners, and callers. Um, my apologies. Uh, told myself I was laying down for five minutes. I missed the whole program. Um, so I did get the uh, news that um, we are in San Diego, um, our restaurant got shut down, and I think it's the whole uh, city of San Diego on three-week shutdown, I want to say. Um, interesting thing, uh, we were just talking about this, like, the day before, no, yesterday, the day before at work, we were just talking about um, if we think we were going to get shut down, business had been so slow, um, prior to uh, this shutdown, I was down to three days a week. Um, so like it was, things were, were getting pretty slow, uh, tightening up. Um, and so I did have a couple of reports. I was actually prepared for today's program. Let me see, let me watch that here. 
Um, I don't know if you guys talked about it. I didn't hear the program. I was watching the news today, and um, I saw that in China, they are using the CRISPR program to create super soldiers. I don't know if you played that clip on the program or if anybody else saw that, but, uh, you know, my antennas, quote, I'm sorry. Um, when I saw that, I became very interested. Um, and the second report that I had was about a uh, black male by the name of Eric Monty. Um, I want to say he was the writer of, I had it in my notes. I want to say he was the writer. I know he had something to do with uh, Good Times and uh, the Jeffersons and believed to be um, the Cosby Show. But um, many years ago, Eric Monty, I'll hear it on my notes right here. Okay. So Eric Monty wrote Cooley Hot based on his own story, created Good Times in the Jefferson and may have had a role in the creation of the Cosby Show. Um, so many years ago, he had started to talk about the um, how the black image was being uh, basically, how do I want to say, not even metaphor, the, uh, the black image was being torn down. I don't know if that's a metaphor, but uh, he saw what was happening to the black image in Hollywood years ago, and he started to talk about it years and years ago, and he... Um, the system of white supremacy um, came at him very hard. Uh, I'm kind of trying to have a uh, having a hard time gathering my thoughts. Thank you for taking my call. I mean, my life. Much obliged, Rob, in California. It is. Uh, I was going to say it's late, but it's not quite 9 p.m. But I mean, hey. Many non-white people have difficulty sleeping, so honor your body. If you're tired, you're tired. Uh, You only fall asleep when you need more rest. So apparently you need more rest. Get your sleep. That is super important to talk about health and immunity. Getting quality rest is critical to healthy, well-functioning immune system. Uh, I did not hear the report about the Super so super soldiers. Uh, I guess them using some sort of CRISPR technology gene editing to make uh, so-called super soldiers. I did not hear about that. Uh, read about that today. Uh, the our previous caller in California. We did talk about the not effing around leader being charged, uh, or I did say something about that earlier. Follow the logic and gun laws uh let's see oh yeah i was looking at the regulation i did see that where california had really severe uh restrictions with regards to the rona and even with that i saw white people again white defiance you're not going to push us around you're not going to tell us to shut down they were out in mass like upset because they had closed one of the beaches down white defiance and then uh, I think it was Gavin Newsom Governor Newsom and a few others they were putting in these orders and then like there would be a picture or something of where they were out at a restaurant 
or something where they were telling people not to do these things and stay at home and then they were violating it themselves. They go, well, I just wanted to support my restaurant before the lockdown went in effect and blah, 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 and all the rest. But white defiance, uh, it's been broadly on display. And and even with all that, like, wow, uh, I've heard, we've heard from a number of folks in California over the past 10 months, most of this calendar year, uh, with the different restrict and in different locations like Sacramento and San Francisco Bay area and Southern California and the different restrictions. I mean, like curfew, do you all have a curfew, uh, Robin, Wisconsin, or is it no curfew? Um, <clears throat> I want to say that the curfew actually starts. I think we go into full lockdown after a full day tomorrow. So, Funny thing, well, not funny, but my hours have been so short. Like, I'm traveling an hour, an hour to get to work, and I was only averaging about a four-hour shift, but I was also leaving a couple hours early into that four-hour shift. So it was perfectly fine for me to text ahead my manager and be like, hey, I'm going to skip today's shift. So I did that today. And then I got a text later on from her saying, hey, you know, today the last day we shutting down. And then the email from the job came out saying that today was going to be our last day. And then they redid an email saying that tomorrow is going to be the last day. And I want to say after tomorrow, at like after like a full uh, work day, we are going to go into uh, home restriction. And uh, Gus, can I add one more quick thing? Just uh, another report that I saw today. All right. Possible. Uh, very quickly. Um, <clears throat> and I know that we don't uh, do the um, entertainment, but I was uh, was watching TV, sorry, and I saw a commercial about menthol cigarettes killing black people in the black community. Thank you. Hmm. Rona, menthol cigarettes, lots of things. <laughs> Dylan Roof, lots of uh, white men with chainsaws, lots of hazards uh, with regards to black people in the system of white supremacy racism. Uh, we have less than 10 minutes, about seven minutes. If you have. <laughs> Yikes. This one is having lots of fun for their Saturday evening. Uh, Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Can I be heard again? Uh, let's see. But we'll, I guess Thomas spoke. We'll get Thomas, and then we'll get you retired firefighter. Uh, I'll be very thirsty. Uh, um, uh, Rob um, should look up. It's another article that came out this week that says, has the, has the USA stationed super soldiers in Syria um, and um, also the technology that this is it's called human enhancement. You'll find a lot of information on that um, right now. Um, also, it's called transhumanism. Um, but what I, the articles I wanted to get to, Gus, this one is um, First Student, that's the name of the company, School Bus Surveillance, so advanced, comfortable and reliable. It is their ability to record and track the individual student's behavior in real time. All first students, 44,000 buses come equipped with their proprietary 
active conduct tracking system called First Acts. First Acts presents, provides administrators with student misbehavior data trends, students' individual behavior history as soon as they step onto a bus. The types of things students can be reported reads like the inmate information handbook. According to the video, First Facts allows administrators to file incident reports for things like student insubordination, excessive talking, profanity, eating, drinking, and possession of injurious articles. Um, so this means that this thing is not only looking at the students, it's also listening to them on the school bus. And over 500,000 students in the United States take these buses every day. Um, and the other one is uh, students at UK University demand the word black be banned from lectures and textbooks. Um, students at Manchester University have demanded the word black and used as a negative expression such as black male should be banned because it's divisive. After report labels the use of black, use of the words which included black as divisive and not inclusive. The university student union demanded that any other use of the word black as an adjective to express negative connotations should be banned from research papers, lecture slides, books, published, published by professors. Students claim, this is the last paragraph here, that such words were based on colonial history, should be abolished in the light of the Black Lives Matter movement. So. You can say black is Black Lives Matter, but you can't say, I mean, this is like um, totally um, erasing history. And um, the very last thing, I looked at the population of the United States, it says whites make up 73% of the population. And I'm thinking something's wrong with that. I mean, my mom. Might depend on how they classify so-called Latinos and all the rest of it. Lots of ways you can practice deception when you get to fabricate so-called racial classifications. Uh, Ra, uh, excuse me, uh, retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir. I, I actually should have brought this up first in, in my week of report. Uh, and it's actually been before, but, um, uh, uh, but I, you know, I'm getting, to the point to where I'm being forgetful with things. Uh, the caller before Thomas actually brought it back to my attention. Has anyone other than myself have observed the multitude of commercials where it has to be a, a non-white black male or female with a white male or female? I mean, it, it, it is every other commercial. And as we all know, commercials advertise a product. But what rivals with the, 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 the tangible product in these commercials is the idea of sex between a white person and a, and a non-white person. I mean, it rivals with, with whatever else they're selling. I've been I've been noticing that to whereas I, I literally turn the television off during these commercials because there's so many of them. You know, it's, I mean, it, it's 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 been a it's been a huge uh, 
uh, amount lately. Uh, I would say now going on, <coughs> excuse me, uh, now going on now for at least about eight months it's been going on. And uh, that that's all I have to say. I just wonder if anybody have noticed that also. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, I think that's been, uh, I, I can't say commercials exclusively, but I think television and entertainment in general promotes uh, sexual sewering of all sorts, tragic arrangements. Incidentally, that right there is exactly why we had that rule for the compensatory call-in. No Area 8 cowbell and then no entertainment and frequently it's no coincidence that they came up together like that because frequently it does go together like that because it's so frequent uh, so often that they'll have whether it's commercials or a TV scandal or an endless list uh, we talked about that but that is heavily everything on television is going to promote white supremacy racism in a variety of forms so the best thing is to turn it off but yes that myself and other folks have noted that that is pretty consistent in terms of uh, the type of programming on television. Another reason talked about that on the food program. Got to have that television turned off. Uh, It is just poison, poison, poison 24 seven. Any other folks final comment before we get ready to wrap up last minute or so. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, I guess I wanted to um I wanted to ask permission if I could uh respond to what a retired firefighter just stated, but uh but since it's uh area three and area eight, I just wanted to ask you uh permission before. If not, that'd be fine. Well, let's hear it. Um, um, I was on Mr. Fox's channel, I think it's about two years ago, and I think he had a specific uh, playlist uh, that were a compilation, uh, several compilations of advertisements that basically promoted uh, sexual soaring of uh, non-white peoples at the hands of white supremacists. But what was noticeable to me was that it seems, I'm not sure if anyone else noticed, but it seems like there's an upticking around this time of the year and those types of uh, advertisements and uh, other uh, other uh, and other forms of entertainment as well. And I also noticed around this time of year, especially around the so-called Christmas holidays when they would have like slavery movies coming out or movies, you know, about black people on their overt uh, conditions of white supremacy. So I was wondering if there anyone noticed a correlation between that as well. Uh, thank you for letting me speak. I'm in my line. Much obliged, Nyame. Mr. Fox, longtime investor uh, in the cows, upload has uploaded a lot of our content there and other content, uh, constructive content uh, to help folks get a better understanding of white supremacy racism uh, as i said that's pretty uh consistent observation in terms of the type of content and sewering material that you'll see 
in the commercials uh, and such. I don't know about an uptick, an uptick in that content uh, in terms of the end of the year. I don't, I don't think I qualify in terms of seeing enough commercials uh, or TV content to make an astute judgment. Um, and I don't watch the slave flicks, even though that is pretty consistent because they'll do like Django and 12 years of slaves. That'll be like the big Bravo end of the year. Like, Oh, let's all sit around the Christmas tree and watch. Yeah. Like I don't watch those. So, um, yeah, might be an uptick in those two for the, for the holiday season. Maybe have to ponder on that one. Uh, we will call that a broadcast. We did our three hours. As I said, I'm so excited. OJ Simpson has been a hoot and we pretty much are just getting started. We haven't even done the Bronco chase. Uh, we will slow down and enjoy um, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we have broadcasts before then. Again, just check uh, Black Talk Radio Network, Facebook, uh, Twitter as well. Uh, drop an email if you have a uh, question, thought, suggestion until justice at gmail.com uh, for the folks who are in areas where they're locked down and got curfews and all the rest like wow um, be as safe as possible I uh, hope you're able to be constructive you know while you're uh, in greater confinement uh, still able to be uh, constructive and you know get all the resources that you need but wow what a year just hoping that we can get through all of this as best we can and uh Man, it has been a tussle. Uh, I am looking forward to the Global Sunday Talk just because I think some of the so-called European countries have already approved the vaccine. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to hear their thoughts uh, about getting jabbed, as they say. Stay tuned. I hope it has been a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. Uh, We will be back soon. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy that has always included cigarettes. Like, man, we do not need any menthol cancer sticks. Whites have done an extraordinary job uh, promoting and propagandizing cigarette smoking for black people. So that absolutely, uh, and that's supposed to be what they call a comorbidity with the Rona. So that would be good to kick that for lots of reasons. Uh, in addition to being sober, uh, we are, I still say hunker down. You got race soldiers with chainsaws, like period. We can abbreviate that for this week. Hunker down race soldiers with chainsaws. If you're going out, you are buckled. If you're driving, you're not on the cell phone. We got race soldiers with chainsaws. Lots of reasons to be alert. Additionally, we are not, or excuse me, we want to be not on the cell phone to make sure we are minimizing contact with race soldiers. Already got said on the program, but bears repeating badge or no, just doing the small things, being sober, buckled, not on the cell phone. That's it, creator. We ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places 
each and every time we are in contact with another black person no name calling they had in the book this week Jesse Jackson called OJ Simpson uh, what was it an ethnically neutral Negro I had to go back and get the it was, it was stunning I, even, I think I have the book pulled up right now but he killed it with the with the name calling even though he was being supportive and you know he shouldn't be uh, prosecuted and all that let's see if I can can I can I find it quickly before we go off run of his life Jeff Tubin let's see de-ethnicized that was it it was so I had never heard of it Jesse Jackson called OJ a kind of de-ethnicized Negro no I don't even know what that means Jesse if you could explain that one for us I would appreciate it the de-ethnicized Negro no name calling Cal signing up thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed I'm a victim brother a victim I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.